Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I am Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hi there, Cameron. Would you like to take a take a little prize from the trolley cart here? Nope. Okay. Well, that's nope. not very social of you. It isn't. Hmm. You can take that raffle ticket and uh, shove it. <laughs> Buster. <laughs> oh, We're I'm really uh, predicating on the exclusions here. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I'm no selling this one. I am so anti raffles. Uh, you would not believe how anti raffles I am. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. But I'm not into it. I'm not into any of these weird social gambling things that that everyone says you got to participate in. Like two years ago, we're 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 coming in hot in uh -huh. this episode. <laughs> Like two years ago, I had a student come up to me in the, you know, like before class and uh, she was selling for like the soccer team or something, a raffle. And that it was the hardest like decision I have ever made in the sense of like, I wanted to support my student mm -hmm. and look, you know, they needed new, new uniforms or whatever. Right. But I am so deeply anti-raffle <laughs> in my heart. Uh-huh. That I really had to overcome something to say, like, hey, I'll give you $5 or whatever for this raffle ticket. So, this is a book about gambling. <laughs> <laughs> we are, uh, this episode, you've probably seen the title. This episode is on Rebecca Cassidy's Vicious Games, Capitalism, and Gambling. Uh, that's it. That's the subtitle. Uh, got a nice little neon cover on it. It is from, uh, unlike the vast majority of books we have done on the show, it is not a university press book. It is a, um, like trade press book or like a, like a, uh, I don't know. Those like intermediary publishers who do like academic -y style books, but, uh, for a broader audience or geared at a broader audience than maybe some academic presses do. Mm -hmm. Um, it's by Pluto. It's published by Pluto Press. It's from... A couple years ago? 2020. Uh, 2020. Yeah. Oh, 2020. Uh, so fairly new, fairly recent, uh, significantly more recent than our previous book on uh, gambling that we did, which was uh, Shul's uh, Addicted by Design. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I you know I don't know uh, where you want to start here, but uh, I thought this was interesting. It, it is geared toward the UK rather than the US, and these are very different. Mm -hmm. I, it's, I'm glad that we read this book, actually. Yeah, it's <clears throat> getting emotional about it. Yeah, I I'm just thinking about all these horses, Cameron. <laughs> uh, and how good they are at running. They're so good. And, and, and they're how they're becoming being less relevant. They're less relevant than the, the digital horses. <laughs> uh, the digital horses are, are taking their positions. Uh, yeah, so I one of the things <laughs> I think that's helpful to know up front, because I didn't know this when I started reading, and it ended up making mm -hmm. me ask a lot of like questions. Not like, you know... Like, uh, uh, world turning questions, we? but like, so, uh, Rebecca Cassidy is a professor in anthropology at Goldsmiths University. Um, mm -hmm. and she is specifically like an anthropologist of like the history of gambling and horse racing, uh, because there, there are bits later on in this book, like the big picture, this book, uh, like Shul, interestingly enough, uh, has a lot of field work in it right a lot of interviews a lot of like uh, conversations that have happened with people who are kind of working in and around the industry mm -hmm. um do, do you have a physical copy of the book i do not 
Oh, uh, the blurb on the back is by Natasha Dalshul. Oh, okay, cool. You want me to, uh, takes readers behind the scenes of the commercial gambling industry to reveal how it reinvents itself. A first-hand view of the dynamic and sometimes vicious interactions between the hunt for profit and punters' lives. Uh So, so yeah, very much, uh, aligned with that project in in some, in some key ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, the, the thing that like made me be like, wait, what the heck is going on? Is there, there's a bit maybe halfway into this book where, uh, she mentions that she had started doing her field work in like the, the, the betting shops in like the 1990s. And I was like, wait a minute, what is, what is the like tail on this project how long has she been working on this book uh and then i found out that she specifically specifically uh she has written like two other books i think about horse racing and gambling and it was like okay this Uh, makes more sense (laughs) yeah because i was like this is just this is a lot of field work for this specific book (laughs) yeah i mean this has got what 10 years of field work in it Mm -hmm. some something like that maybe more than that actually because some of the field work is going back to uh the 90s right the late 90s kind of like the shul book yeah sounded like Mm -hmm. uh Um, and she sort of like contrasts uh like what because she's she's done field work kind of repeatedly uh she contrasts kind of uh experiences uh working in betting shops in the 90s versus like field work she's done uh in more contemporary settings and kind of like how like how clearly the gambling industry uh in the united kingdom at least has changed uh in in kind of its priorities and um not so much in its character really in some cases but in other cases yes i guess yeah absolutely yeah i think that's a good way of putting it the something that i actually wish this is something i think i've said several times on this uh show and is maybe revealing about uh maybe how i think an academic book should be written Notably, I did not write my own book this way, so maybe I should <laughs> take my own advice. But the conclusion for this book maybe should be read first, mm-hmm. um, because the conclusion sets out so clearly like what the stakes are for like what you just read. And I think having read the, the whole book now, I would have wanted to learn some of that stuff in the conclusion uh, up front. But I really like the imagery, or not imagery, I guess, I, the description that that Cassidy gives about, you know, the UK since the 80s, so, you know, since Thatcher, basically, mm-hmm. is one big experiment in privatization. Mm-hmm. And in, in one might say that, like, uh, our, our basic assumptions about privatization are, are that, look, that, you know, the, the nanny state blah, is, is being abolished, and so, therefore, the free market can rise and do all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so then, like, "Quote unquote natural processes begin to kick in, right, right, and that and she she's very critical of this, right, mm-hmm. and so she says actually no, what happens is that it, when the state steps back, you just end up with a lot of other different people <laughs> with a lot of different other tools tinkering to kind of lay the groundwork for other industries to appear, and so part of the argument of this book, and I'm sure that that we'll we'll get to it, but I just found it very clear in the conclusion. Part of the argument for this book is that. Our, our cultural narratives about gambling are is that gambling is so natural and so part of human life that to to prevent it or stymie it in any kind of way is a fool's errand. Yes. And she says, actually, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Anytime that the UK is a great kind of experiment, right? Or, you know, a really um, not great as in good, but great as in uh, illustrative, yeah. you know, informative. 
Um, it's a great experiment because it shows exactly how one has to cultivate a gambling industry to make gambling work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people might be doing gambling, but you don't get the massification of gambling in the way that all the people would want you to believe that you do. You don't get that without someone tending the field, right? Politicians, industry people, technologists. You need a lot of different people from a lot of different uh, kind of corners of the social world all working together uh, mm -hmm. and working together ideologically mm -hmm. uh, to do it. And this kind of fantasy of nature, right, of like, it is natural to gamble, and so then therefore we can only deal with it. We can never uh, augment it or we can never modify it or we can never outright ban it. Um, you know, she's very critical of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, so I think maybe I, I maybe you want to say something about that. I don't want to jump to the next thing. <laughs> Uh, I mean, just the, the other way to uh, look at this, right, from kind of uh, uh, a more against the grain perspective is that what mm -hmm. uh, Cassidy is pointing out is that all of these arguments about like, well, gambling is natural, so we should just regulate it and so on and so forth. Uh, this is this is one of those uh, to, to quote the old uh, Twitter adage, right? How do we monetize the rot? Yeah, right. Yeah. Not that gambling is in and of itself rot, although this is another thing that's really interesting that this book gets into is kind of like the um, the sense that a lot of people in the gambling industry have that uh, they are like a persecuted minority. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> and combined that, like, with the fact that they hate people who gamble. Right. Um, <laughs> and so like they, they would hear me saying monetize the rot and be like, no, it's a completely legitimate business interest. But this is precisely the maneuver that uh, Cassidy is interested in, like, you know, pulling out of its kind of submerged uh, uh, place here uh, where uh, how does the uh, uh, sort of like cultural discourse around gambling get shifted such through movements of both like regulation and industry um, to make people think that gambling is like uh, at its base, like value neutral, right? A thing that is going to happen anyway. So we might as well uh, let it happen in ways that uh, let people make money and make it profitable. Mm hmm. It is the same. I love the distinction between like retail and online, like all these fine grained distinctions that they make. But fundamentally, right from the uh, the gambling industry's perspective, they are no different than a Seven Eleven. Yes, and they should be treated the same as a Seven Eleven. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> repeatedly, Cassidy is like, well, "What about all these people that ruin their lives? <laughs> you know, doing the thing." They don't ruin their lives buying, like, ho-hos at 7-Eleven. <laughs> What's up with that? And uh, they're like, yeah, those people are broken. Mm -hmm. Don't don't worry about that. They're bad. And there's some, like, truly horrifying things. Because, right, she, she's an anthropologist, and she is uh, unafraid to throw the big block quote in mm -hmm. of just, like, what she wrote down or what she recorded and to really just demonstrate what these people think. Um, maybe this is a good place to talk about style, um, because, you know, I, I really said that Addiction by Design, the last book that we did, you know, I was like, look, this is an academic book. This is how you do it. Um, I think this book is, is um, basically in the same spot, although Scholl has an uh, American academic, really heavy, heavily impacted by theory kind of vibe to it that mm -hmm. I, you know, just my own um, predilections, <laughs> you know, make me like that a little bit more here. Uh, there, there's a little bit of like uh, Deleuzean, Deridian style going on in Scholl, right? Mm -hmm. A little bit of wordplay, a, a little gaming. 
that uh, that I like uh, a bit more. So so you know, I that's still my high water mark. It's going to be hard for someone to surpass that. But I really liked reading this book, Vicious Games, mm-hmm. um, and I liked it both because of the information provided. I thought it was really helpful. I think that in a general sense, you if you liked Addiction by Design or you read that, you probably need to read this as well because it tells a very different story about what gambling is in a different cultural formation. And I, I think it would be very tempting to like take Addiction by Design as the one story mm-hmm. and, and Cassidy really problematizes that or, or complicates it. Um, but I also really like how funny uh, Rebecca Cassidy is. This book is... Uh, uh, like, I, And part of that is almost like all of the the people that she's interviewing like the there's something i say in my notes at one point where like shul we have a lot of like quotes interviews big block quotes uh anecdotal things and there's this thing that's happening where all of like the uk gambling folks or uh, later on kind of the um like international gambling people that uh cassidy is talking to Mm -hmm. are in in gibraltar or the caribbean yes uh Mm -hmm. in macau uh Mm-hmm. eventually uh uh like i got to this like sense of like somehow all of the people that cassidy is talking like maybe i i think i think that shul is primarily talking in like the american gambling industry so um there's this broader sense through cassidy all of the people she is talking to are simultaneously like much more crass than anyone shul talks to uh, and sort of like just forthright in kind of their uh, uh, like how despicable they find uh, uh, problem gamblers and things like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. So they're, they're like so much more upfront and hostile about that. And also they seem to have like greater senses of shame from time to time. Mm-hmm. Where uh, for for Shul, it often felt like she had kind of like maneuvered a person into a place where they like had a had a like moment of realization of like, oh, this thing that I just said doesn't actually hold up to what I said like three minutes ago. Uh, and here, like you actually get people being like, hmm, I think I did something really bad. Or like I there's that one guy who's like I, he he worked as a manager of a casino in secret for like three years without telling his family. Yeah, there's a couple of those people in yeah. this book who worked in the gambling industry for a long time. One guy worked for like 10 or something. That's in the intro, I believe. Yeah. Um. But but yes, yeah, there's a few of those. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it is interesting because it does give you such a different uh, kind of narrative about who is even in this industry and kind of what are they like. Uh, and... um. Cassidy is not uh, in Shul tends to be uh, more subtle about it, about when she's kind of like putting people on blast. But Cassidy just puts people on blast. <laughs> well, there's this there's this kind of thing going on that, that I think is really interesting that uh, that Shul is not really surfacing here. But Rebecca Cassidy repeatedly says, like, look, um, <laughs> I'm like a middle aged woman mm-hmm. and people don't take me seriously. Yes. And so then I show up and I just like shoot the shit with people and talk about Big Brother or whatever with them. And then they, they, you know, we just have conversations. And so there's an informality to a lot of the discussions that happen, mm-hmm. or, you know, or a lot of those quotes that I think gets to something. Whereas I think you're right. For Shul, it often feels like there's a Freudian move that happens where like, uh, Shul is talking to someone and the talking cure is working, right? Mm-hmm. And they like come to some sort of knowledge about themselves. 
very rarely are people coming to knowledge about themselves in Cassidy's Cassidy's work. And it might have to do, too, with just the sheer difference of the anthropological method here, right? Mm-hmm. Because Cassidy, I, tell, I'll list some things off and you tell me what I'm missing. Things that Cassidy does to inform this book, you know, uh, field work that Cassidy does. Mm-hmm. Um, working in a bunch of different bedding shops behind, you know, bulletproof glass. Mm-hmm. Working in uh, as a stable person in horse racing, mm-hmm. hanging out in bedding shops, just like with middle aged dudes eating peanuts all day, looking at the board. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, going going to Gibraltar and just hanging out with a bunch of, of tech people, going to a bunch of conferences and like, hanging out with these like drunk middle aged dudes and becoming their friends, and then being like, "Hey, I'm an anthropologist. You want to talk to me?" Mm-hmm. Um, hanging out in a hot tub with those guys <laughs> or around the hot tub, right? There's there's this kind of like, um, I don't know, like working class, you know, willing to be very working class kind of uh, uh, soul leather operation going on here, mm-hmm. which is opposed to the Scholl method, which as far as I remember from that book, there was no working in the industry involved, right? It was go find the people, go to their events, talk to them, you know, straight up as an academic, mm-hmm. whereas Cassidy just has all of these different inroads. I don't know. Did I miss any other uh, pieces of, of the anthropological puzzle here? No, I think, uh, I mean, you know, she, not just the, the going to the industry and stuff, but like going to these little towns that are holding raffles and like participating in the raffles and like learning when she's, uh, done a slight like social faux pas with like the raffle group and then like working to like remedy that later. Right. There's, there's a real like embeddedness that Cassidy is getting at. Yeah. Yes. And so I, I think that kind of accounts for maybe some of the forthrightness here is that, um, Shul is always talking to people as an academic who is speaking to people in the games industry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like that, that seems to be the mediating operation there. The kind of, you know, uh, Berkeley precedes her, right? Uh, you know, uh, whereas that, that is happening sometimes in the Cassidy book, but not always. And I think that really gives it gives a different quality. And like, you know, there's just a kind of like on the groundism in this book in a, in I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but in like a smaller, more localized culture, mm-hmm. you know, a betting, a local betting shop is a local betting shop. It is not part of like the, the, the Vegas industry, right? Mm-hmm. It is part of a small town. And, you know, she, she tells the one long story that's about the, the guy who is kicking the gambling machine and they're trying to kick him out and he won't leave. And then there's like the unhoused guy who just hangs out there all the time. Right. And, and he like, he, he runs with them behind the, the counter. Yeah. That guy gets angry. And like, even the, the unhoused guy who's like consistently hanging around the shop, like he comes around behind the bulletproof glass with them in case that guy gets really violent. Yeah. And that, that I don't know. That's just like a, that is a localized, you know, kind of thing that occurred that that in the U.S. is like hard to feel. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not a thing that we do often in the U.S. Right? Are right. these like complex collapses of social uh, experience into like these hyper localized cultures? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't I don't know what the account is for that. But anyway, that's all to say there's a definite style difference here around some of that stuff that that I really felt and, and really felt like this book was was great to read because of that. I re- really felt like I got new and different types of knowledge here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, big picture. I, I think our responses to the book, uh, do we want to talk about kind of individual chapters here? Uh, the, the, the structure of the book is, um, kind of, uh, 
kaleidoscopic makes it <laughs> is, is not exactly right, but it's kind of like uh, aspects of gambling in the United Kingdom and how they kind of align with various worldviews. Y- yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, because it's kind of it's interesting. It's that. And then it's also like scalar and locational. Yeah. Yes. It's, it, it, I, yeah. It's somewhere between what you just said and like sites of knowledge or like sites of production. Right. I don't, I don't really. I don't know. I, I don't know how to precisely talk about the way that the book kind of organizes the, you know, its, its structure. But- I think sites is a good way of putting it. I think that's how I would change my my thinking here, because it is uh like all of the the sort of ideologies behind these places are always kind of being uh, pointed out and like where they fit together, it's being noted, but it really is uh, like here is a place where gambling happens or a type of like specific form of gambling. And here is how it fits into the larger picture or how it echoes things for that. I've already talked about and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so, so um, it's a book that I think uh, holds together in, uh, I don't know, in the big context, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I feel like I know a lot about what's going on now, having read the whole book, but each individual piece only gives you a piece, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I think we'll just talk about each, each individual chapter. I, I will say that this book is quite a bit different from Shul in that this is a book that it, it's, it is anthropological work, but it's not anthropological work that really kicks out into a broader theoretical argument that like, moves across disciplines i'm not you know i this is a book that is about gambling mm-hmm. it is about what is happening in these sites of, of where gambling is located and you know diffuse and occurring um and so i a lot of this book is just kind of dedicated to telling you stuff about these sites and like how they work and, and what they do and so it's really highly informative in that way but i think probably for some of these chapters we'll move pretty quickly because it you know uh to, to talk through them extensively would just be to tell you what is in the chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd feel a little Wicca summary. <laughs> my, own, my own new thing. But yeah, so yeah, let's let's do it. Let's. Uh, so the book's got an introduction, mm-hmm. like some books do. Yeah. Um, and it's really explicit that this book is a book about gambling since the 80s, like I said before, right? It, mm-hmm. It's a book that, uh, you know, po- kind of post-Thatcher, even though we kind of kick backward a little bit to the 60s occasionally, um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Cassidy kind of walks us through, uh, her journey as an anthropologist, as you said, started, uh, doing stuff around horse racing in the late nineties and then kind of spun up from there as gambling rapidly changed in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the introduction really, uh, l- lays out what is going to be kind of the big claim, which is that, uh, well, something we've already talked, uh, touched on that gambling like we have a myth right or a sort of story that is being told that gambling is a natural phenomenon uh that people are going to do anyway so we might as well regulate it or like profit from it in some some uh respect and uh her argument is that right no uh gambling like gambling industries are produced by like social actions and like the the existence of regulation creates an industry that is qualitatively different from what might have existed prior to regulation right once there's like sort of legalized uh, a profit motive happening uh and especially once that gets sort of wrapped up in like the government for instance this is a thing that comes up in shul but we uh, uh didn't touch on it very much but it's um touched on much more here once the government is reliant on income from gambling uh either taxes or like cuts or or the lottery or whatever uh 
uh, it becomes very, very hard to disentangle government and gambling. Like they, they get uh, uh, sutured together very, very quickly. And uh, regulation from that point forward uh, tends to favor gambling more and more. And that, like, again, creates something qualitatively different from what would have existed prior to it. Uh, and the first chapter then kind of walks through the history of how this happened in the United Kingdom, starting with, uh, as you said, in the 60s, when uh, betting shops got legalized. And we get a little bit more about like the prehistory of that later on. Um, but that's kind of like the first big flashpoint is that in the early 60s, the United Kingdom uh, legalized betting shops, but there were all of these uh, sort of strictures on it um, about like, Oh, you couldn't have televisions in there. You couldn't like serve <laughs> refreshments. You had to uh, black out the windows so people mm -hmm. could see in because often these uh, betting shops uh, arise on the high street in any given town. Uh, the high street being equivalent to like the United States Main Street. Um, so uh, that kind of is, is the first kickoff. But then in the 1980s, we get the move that the Thatcherite move toward deregulation, um, which she points out is happening, even though there is very little public support, like people at the time were not like champing at the bit to get gambling legalized. But because mm -hmm. of the ideology of uh, the conservative party at the time, like you had to privatize and deregulate, right? You had to pull back that nanny state, even in an instance where like people were actually pretty all right with the nanny state, it seems like. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's this uh, beautiful kind of uh, layout that Cass Cassidy does here, right? Of just like sketching out the the ideological ramifications here. It is under you know the 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 neoliberal right the maneuver right the neoliberal maneuver to deregulate mm -hmm. and kind of break up the state. Um, that the the primary um uh. Uh, idea behind that right is the object precedes its relations mm -hmm. right like you are uh that's actually from a much much different uh philosophical tradition but that's a way of uh conceiving it too um that the individual the atomic individual precedes their social relations right there is no such thing as society blah mm -hmm. blah blah um because of that Anything that that impinges on the freedom for for a human being to then voluntarily create social connections in whatever way they want to is anathema, right? It's just bad. It's it's like, why would that ever exist, right? Why would you stop someone from doing what they want to do if it's not going to to hurt someone? Blah blah blah. And so uh, within that, the 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 way that the industry and politicians push the possibility and the transformation in game in gambling is this beautiful kind of argument for no one where it's <laughs> like, well, look, no one's asking to gamble, but why would we stop them from doing it? If they're a free human being, right? Huh? Mm -hmm. huh? <laughs> but God, like that opens up this like Pandora's box of just absolute, I mean, not total deregulation, but uh, consistently, you know, maneuvering toward different forms of deregulation, um, you know, slowly bit by bit over time. And so it seems like a, a relatively small number of people, you know, politicians, industry actors, things like that, are the ones who were pushing toward this. Because she interviews all of these people in the early 2000s who were betting shop owners or they were bookies uh, who were operating at the time. And they were like, yeah, we were conservatives, but like we didn't want this. <laughs> yeah. We didn't want to like blow up our industry. Like we, the, you know, we were mom and pop shop and now we're having to compete with like 
a massive multi, you know, uh, multinational corporation that's like managing all this gambling stuff. That's bad. We didn't want deregulation. Mm-hmm. We just wanted to be able to like not be ashamed of what we were doing. We wanted to be treated like you know the Seven Eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I, I did the, the additional thing too about the betting shop regulations in the sixties is that. Somewhere she quotes someone saying that the purpose of those regulations, you know, because everyone knew that betting was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we should actually talk about like what a betting shop is in a second. Yeah. But um, betting is happening. It's illegal. Uh, being driven underground and being illegal is probably bad. So we should probably legalize the parts of it that are like acceptable to us. So then I, us here being the UK. So that then, therefore, you can, like, capture some of the money involved in it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the logic here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the logic. It seems like for the, the massification of the legalization of gambling everywhere is like, oh, well, I guess it's going on, so the state needs to cut of that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, little do they know that that then intensifies gambling significantly. But uh, so what they do, as you said, like, you know, blacking out the windows, no TVs, people have to leave between things. And... The, the pitch that she quotes from someone is that leaving a betting shop should evoke the same shame in someone as leaving a brothel. Mm-hmm. Like, so in your mind, like, whatever your feelings are about that, which, like, there's, like, a thousand uh, <laughs> bad assumptions built into that, right? But that is the social mechanism that the people who are betting shop owners, that's what they think they're fighting against, right? Mm-hmm. We are legitimate businessmen who are treated as if we do something that is, you know, uh, heavily, heavily uh, disliked within the UK, right? Mm-hmm. With UK mainstream culture. And in fact, we are much more, you know, stand up than that. And that when you said that, you know, they act like they're persecuting minorities, that's the that's the, the deal there, right? There, there's this kind of uh, complex about that, about the way they are socially created. So they're constantly fighting for these, like, methods of legitima- legitimation and legalization and... Uh, the increase of market sh- share, those things are uh, legitimation to them. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to make more legal money is legitimation. So it's interesting how all these things kind of fit together. I, I think that this book does a really interesting job of interleaving the social mechanisms of the UK with the gambling culture mm-hmm. um, and the gambling businesses because they're inextricable from one another. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, Shell kind of has that work uh, made, you know, made out for her because, of course, Las Vegas is the United States in miniature, right? Like right. <laughs> we have a, we have fifty years of people saying that we know that already. Um, so if that's already the case, then of course, you know, that argument's much easier to get to. But Cassidy, I think, has to do a little bit more work because gambling is kind of disavowed by mainstream culture mm-hmm. or had been for a very long time in the UK. Has to do a little bit more work to say like. Hey, 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 uh, you know, we constantly are pretending as if gambling is not us. Mm-hmm. And like people will not call themselves gamblers in the UK. Like she, you know, she has all these quotations from people being like, well, uh, I don't gamble, but I love a bet every now and again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Or the raffle chapter, which I really loved. And mm-hmm. I bet you did too. Yes. But, um, so there's all this kind of work that Cassidy has to do as an anthropologist to say, hey, um, it is a, a pure fantasy that gamblers are those other people in the UK. In fact, lots and lots of people are doing it. And since the 1980s, even more people have done it uh, because of how normalized and kind of uh, quote unquote proper it has gotten. You know, mm-hmm. eventually we get to a chapter where 
uh, something like 80% of the people who play the phone gambling games don't even think they're gambling. Mm-hmm. The, you know, she, she quotes from someone who's designing the games or working in the industry that does the games. And he says, oh, yeah, they think they're just phone game players. Yes. They don't even think they're gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure we'll have more to say about that. But, um, but yeah, so there's a really complicated and great, I think, uh, social mechanism analysis going on here. But... Uh, do you want to talk about betting shops? Do you have a sense of what goes on in a betting shop? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, just to lay some groundwork here, uh, the the other thing that is really useful about this book in conversation with Shul is that it does underscore the degree to which, like, the forms, that, the, the, the culturally specific forms that gambling takes, uh, because we don't need, we don't need a Las Vegas for the UK. Um, you know, we don't need that space that is like the United States in miniature or, or whatever, um, because the trajectory of gambling in the UK, uh, at least in, in kind of the history that um, Cassidy is presenting, grows specifically out of horse racing. Um, and so the betting shops are initially places where, like the in this is uh, she puts this in, in the 19th century, right, uh, that. Uh, the betting shops are places that you go to place your bets on the horse races uh, and also dog races and uh, maybe, you know, other sporting events at different points in time. But primarily, this is this is what gambling looks like. Uh, and it's seen as, uh, you know, predictably like a, a male working class behavior. So this is also another interesting thing, the way that gender shows up in this book. Um, uh, Cassidy points out the kind of casual misogyny and sexism of the industry pretty frequently. Um, uh, but then also like, for like in in whereas Shul talks about how the the United States gambling industry and particularly the machine industry seems so hyper focused on like this i like the ideal uh, gambler is like the the middle aged woman with uh, a little bit of money and too much time. Um, the gambling in the UK emerges as uh like a bloke's kind of pastime. You know, heading down to the bet shop, place your bet, uh, and get your money later. Um. So uh, that's kind of what these things are initially. Uh, and I already mentioned like the things that they're not allowed to do uh, later on in kind of the 80s when uh, the Thatcher government is working on gambling re- regulation. Uh, one of their kind of priorities is what they think of as like uh, it's like better regulation is how they pitch it. Right. Um, and some of this ends up meaning like uh, you can have TV screens in the bet shops. Um, and you can serve light refreshments and people can sit there for a little bit. Um, the argument being that if you don't let legalized bet shops do this, then you're just giving more power to the illegal bet shops that don't care about the regulations and are like doing it all, you know, like under the table. Uh, so that's a, that's another interesting move, right? That like, well, we need to, to uh, repeal some of these strictures on the bet shops in order to uh, uh, combat like whatever nefarious thing may be happening illegally in in the gray or black market. Um, This is not just conservatives, though, Cassidy points out. Uh, Quite surprisingly, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, new labor uh, tilts like fully forward into deregulation. Um, so, you know, the, the opposing party to the conservatives, uh, you know, uh, sort of both, both becomes like more neoliberal, uh, and like, uh, more, I, how to, how to put this, like, rather than being, cause Margaret Thatcher has that, uh, 
uh, doesn't she get quoted where she's just like, well, my family didn't care for it or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like she doesn't. It's one of the funniest things in this book. Hold on, hold on. Uh, it's on page 25. Uh, I definitely wrote it down. Okay. Mm-mm. Gambling got short shrift from Margaret Thatcher, who was, by disposition and upbringing, suspicious of merriment. As she told one interviewer, for us, it was rather a sin to enjoy yourself by entertainment. Life was not to enjoy ourselves. Life was to work and do things. Mm-hmm. I love... I mean, that's what I'm talking about. That This book is quote, very funny. Mm-hmm. Who was, by disposition and upbringing, suspicious of merriment. Right. So, and then the next, like, good contrast to this um, is uh, when we have that with with Thatcher, right? And her kind of perspective is we don't really, like, I don't really care for gambling. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, uh, but sure, we'll, like, uh, make the regulation better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's value neutral, right? (laughs) Like, it's a thing people do and they should be free to do it. Right, exactly. Um, And then we get uh, John Major, um, uh, another conservative MP who uh, oversees the implementation of the national lottery and then publishes like an op-ed uh, that, I, as uh, uh, Cassidy puts it, is uh, apparently unironically or apparently titled without irony, uh, quote, how I gave hope to the poor. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> like you can't. This is like the like the horrifying thing. You know, you watch like the thick of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, those zany, you know, whatever. Over there in the UK, they're doing all kinds of stuff. And then you read anything about UK politics and you go, oh, oh, this is just it. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just what they do. <laughs> Uh, so then uh, after that, when new labor hits the scene, uh, the way that they tend to uh, understand this is that um, they are just they, they are modernizing the gambling industry. Right. They are. We are dispensing with the old prejudices about uh, like what gambling is and who does it. And we're going to deregulate it. And uh, we are going to make it the truly value neutral thing uh, that it is and that anyone can enjoy. Um and so there's this uh, way in which, like, the the rise of gambling in your society uh, becomes a marker of, like, your national progress through history, right? The fact that we allow gambling uh, makes us more enlightened and more modern than we were before. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, welcome to... Because we recognize that it it is a an urge and a desire in the human. right. And because we do that, you know, because we don't try to, uh, you know, legislate it out of human behavior, we then therefore know what we're doing, right? Which ties into what's happening toward the, what, the end of the introduction here? Oh, yeah, where gambling is just treated as inevitable, mm-hmm. right? So uh, it's natural, uh, just just to do the three here, right? It's natural. So, like, humans do it no matter what, agnostic of social condition. Humans always gamble, mm-hmm. and they gamble in similar ways. Right. Um. It's part of the culture, so you just can't get rid of it, right? If you if you abolish gambling in the UK, guess what? People have been gambling for hundreds of years. You're going to run into some problems there. Um, and that it is specific to some racial groups. Uh-huh. That's It's biological, right? So there, there's some kind of racist um, uh, narrative that happens in the UK around how uh, Asians love to gamble. Mm-hmm. It's like part See, of the thing, which we saw... Yeah, exactly. When I read that, I was like, oh, that's exactly the argument, you know, that were one of the arguments that was used to, um, you know, oppress uh, uh, immigrants in that in the Tara Fickle book, the race card that we read. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and and she works through in that book how that's, you know, socially and politically um, kind of developed as an argument. Right. 
how, how this naturalization of behavior into biology mm-hmm. is done that way, right? So, but but, but this kind of like triumvirate of arguments always is kind of the uh, the trump card against any kind of legislation at this point now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to change gambling, well, guess what? Uh, it, we always gamble. What are you going to do about it? Uh, it's part of our culture. Oh, you can't ch- you can't stop some people from gambling because it's just what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, it becomes a you know as you just said, right? You be- you then get to become kind of a enlightened politician or or an enlightened executive by saying, well, uh, we are just going to create the best mousetrap possible mm-hmm. uh, for the benefit to all because we know these things are going to happen. And you know what this book is is you know partially dedicated to and what is said in the conclusion right the, the very last line of the book this is why i was saying earlier that you know i kind of think flipping this book would be beneficial the very last line of the book is um uh the point of opening up the gambling industry in this way is to show that it is a machine not an animal and as such it can be dismantled and reprogrammed mm-hmm. i don't know if i believe necessarily that's how things work but i i you know that that's saying look like this is a thing we made this is not uh, just a thing that's happening that we can't do. It's this is not a tornado mm-hmm. <laughs> ripping through the world. There are all these different mechanisms for enabling that happens. And as you've just pointed out, right, there's a solid twenty years of very intensified political deregulation that uses these like uh, very thin arguments about like the human mm-hmm. and the natural uh, in order to legitimate itself, even though. You know, there are a thousand billion million different implementations of what that looks like, even right. Mm-hmm. Um, the the you know the the equivalent argument here is like, well, I can't stop a trickle of water from coming through, so I guess I'll just blow up the dam. <laughs> <laughs> like that that literally is like the form of argument, right? Here. Like, well, you, some people are going to gamble, so you might as well just create a massive industry that encourages people to gamble. Right. And we'll have more to say about that and how it like, well, so the, the, a good example of this is that I already explained how betting shops, legalized betting shops come to be. And one of the things that Cassidy points out is that the changing regulation uh, rather than sort of like uh, making the betting shops like better or, or, or safer in any way, uh, qualitatively changes them so that the things going on in there uh, are just like different things are happening, first of all, and then like arguably uh, they get much more dangerous. But uh, that sort of steals thunder from some later chapters. First, we should maybe talk about mm. the non-betting shop, the raffle. Mm. <laughs> Raffles are great. Here, Well, so here's the thing. In the U.S., normally it's like uh, a raffle for you go. OK, hold on. Let me take one step back. If you don't know what a raffle is, um, there there are prizes. And you buy a a ticket for the raffle and they put, you know, each ticket is like torn in half for, you know, there's different systems, but uh, each ticket has a number on it. And one uh, representation of that number goes like in a bucket and one representation of that number goes into your hand. And so everyone buys their tickets. And then at the end, uh, someone reaches down into the bucket or, you know, spins the wheel, whatever. And Russell, Russell, Russell goes down, goes down, goes down, pulls out the number and uh, says, oh, you know, number 108, you have won the raffle. Mm-hmm. And then if you have number 108, you stand up and you go, yes, I'm chosen by God. Yay. And you uh, you go get your prize. You know, you, get, you, get, you mm-hmm. go get your rollerblades mm-hmm. or your huffy bike mm-hmm. or whatever. Your box of meat. That's l- your box of meat. Oh, yeah, box of meat. In the, so in the U.S., normally it's like 
a raffle is centered around like a cool item that you want. Yeah. <laughs> the, the aforementioned box of meat. These are the things that I see most often yeah. out here is like uh, uh, social organizations like your Lions Club or what have you holding a meat mm-hmm. raffle where you get some like high quality steak or whatever if you win. Mm-hmm. And your raffle ticket was a dollar and the steak is worth 120 bucks right. Right, or, or whatever. Uh, here, when, when we go to hockey games, uh, they, they have a raffle for an off the back jersey for every game. Mm-hmm. You know, so like someone... Uh, whips a jersey off and then uh if you won the raffle you get to go get it right so uh it's like items that are high dollar and the idea is that that item is generally donated you know that's that's a charitable or uh you know uh the meat company or whatever they donate it and then the money from the raffle goes to a good cause right it goes to uh team blah 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 who cares Mm -hmm. uh the uh but that doesn't seem to be how prizes and raffles work in in the uk yeah this is so interesting to me um (laughs) yeah i mean so one of the things actually that was notable to me i was talking with you cameron about this before we started recording is that like i studied abroad in the uk when i was an undergrad and like the the differences in gambling culture were never a thing that was clear to me like it was never a thing that i encountered but like reading this cassidy book shows me so many ways that like i mean the ways that people talk about raffles in this particular chapter it's like they're happening weekly. Well, she runs the numbers during the research for this book. Did, did like 380 different raffles. Yeah. Like, I don't think I've seen that many raffles in my life. I think I've participated. You know, I said at the beginning, I don't like raffles. I don't like this kind of gambling. I don't, it's not for me. But uh, I think I've participated in five in my whole life. <laughs> it's not super common. Yeah. So it's just like a, a constant, like, uh, and they're very much a kind of like a, a social thing for and this mm-hmm. is an, another important contrast to like the betting shop, um, often a, a kind of social event for women in a town or in a village um, or like, you know, the the women associated, say, with a particular church or what have you, because um, these people are getting together frequently enough that they all like know each other they recognize one another like they're recognizing uh because so many of the prizes in the rap in the raffle they're not there's not necessarily like the one big prize like it feels like we always have in in u.s raffles um it's like it's almost like a more of a um uh potlatch kind of thing right yeah uh everyone is kind of everyone kind of brings something in that they can uh put forth as a prize in the raffle something that they've been given and maybe don't need and so people become familiar with certain objects as they kind of like circulate through the local raffle economy right this was something that someone gave to someone and they didn't need it so it got given away as a raffle and then it got represented as a a prize for a different raffle and now it's been in so-and-so's like spare room for however long um there's all of these really interesting uh, things happening where, uh, you know, like the the way that this sort of thing, like builds a community around it. Right. The the exchange mm-hmm. and recognition of these objects and their circulation, like creates a kind of historical narrative for people uh, and kind of a little social group. Um also, uh, there are the people who really resent the raffles, and we get some quotes from them who are like, this is all pointless. I don't understand why anyone does it. It's annoying to me. I hate that we have to, every time we go to, uh, you know, an open night at the school or whatever, uh, there's some sort of raffle fundraiser going on. Shouldn't they be getting money somewhere else? Yeah, there's a really funny quote from a guy who's like, I guess it's like a tax. Yes. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe I can find it. Uh, but... 
but yeah, so the um, yeah, that kind of prize structure for it, it's basically like, will you pay one uh, one pound for a ticket to maybe get some garbage that no one wants? Mm-hmm. And I don't, uh, I I yeah, I don't I don't know. But uh, in, like you just said, it's for like everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she lists a bunch of the organizations that she went to a raffle for. But basically, anyone, any organization that needs a little bit of extra money, they will run raffles constantly. Mm-hmm. And so the the purpose of thinking about the raffle here in the book is, what is this gambling? Mm-hmm. And do people think of it as gambling? And uh, no, the answer to number one is very few people seem to or one of those questions very few people seem to think that it is gambling mm-hmm. and so the uh her anthropological field work required her to better define gambling mm-hmm. uh because there were so many people when she was talking to them about anything it, it seems like even including betting they'd be like well that's not gambling mm-hmm. <laughs> and she had to be like uh okay and so she instead of like finding a very narrow definition right she just went broad you know when when they uh, uh when they expect you to uh uh to go uh whatever to go physical you go technical <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, and, and uh the opposite of course so uh so she says this on 42 right um she begins to define gambling as quote the increasing tolerance of cultivating uncertainty in order to create wealth mm-hmm. and that's her kind of operative maneuver here the the other word for this is speculation, mm-hmm. right? The 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 willingness to engage in speculation and speculative economies in order to produce a better outcome from the situation you were in, and it's threaded throughout this book. I I, I kind of wish there had been a chapter on this, mm-hmm. um, like a big like philosophy theory chapter. We kind of get that toward the end, I guess, in like chapter eight uh, has some of that going on, but. Um, that's really fascinating to me, and it's uh, something that's held on uh, or or presented in some of her interviews, too, in the other chapters where she talks to, like, former betting shop owners and managers and things like that, where they say, well, look, in the post-war period, people used betting shops because they thought they could make more money. Like, you could bet on a horse, and if you made proper judgment, you know, of the of the ticket, uh, then you could you could make money. You know, it was a skill. Um, and because it was a skill that required judgment and kind of longitudinal thinking, people who were in a desperate position, this was a, a valid way of making more money. Mm-hmm. Now, was it the best way of doing that? Who, who knows, right? But credit was so tight and impossible to get that the only way to create money from money, essentially, a money from nothing, was gambling. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, that has transitioned in significant ways, and we'll learn more about that here, right? But raffles seem to be a kind of holdover of that, right? They're the kind of the the absolute socialization, the social dimension of gambling and uncertainty, which is like it is thrilling and fun, and it generates money kind of from nothing, um, you know, from social accrual, and uh, uh, and people like it. Mm-hmm. And also, it creates a social system in that if you win too much, people hate you. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, my connection here that I made immediately was like, this is meme stocks. Yes. Like, everything that she's saying about the raffle is meme stocks, which is like, we're all in this together. We're, we're all hoping that we all win out, and some of us will win out, but others of us won't. But we're really excited for the idea of cultivating and tripling down on uncertainty because we know where our lot in life is, and this is our only kind of like moonshot to get out of that. Mm-hmm. 
you know, around the GameStop stuff that, you know, there was so much reporting in that vein mm-hmm. of like, here are young disaffected men who have nothing. And so they like took their, you know, uh, stimulus checks and dumped it into GameStop and look what happened to this guy. He's a multimillionaire now. Yeehaw. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, a bunch of people didn't win that raffle. No, it's a the, the line that comes up always with regard to the raffles or like not always, but frequently. Right. It's like people who mm-hmm. even people who are nominally against gambling and find maybe the raffles a little irritating. They'll be like, oh, but it's for a good cause. And yeah, and that was exactly the meme stocks thing, too. Right. Where it was kind of like. Uh, yeah, sure. This is this is wild and maybe financially risky, but we're really we're really showing it to those Wall Street people. Right. The ways that uh, the the kind of like there's a, a, a sort of like social or ideological aim that can be put out in front of the speculative act that justifies whatever happens uh, regardless of the specific outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's the call to action. Mm hmm. You know, the, it seems like uh, the raffle made this world. Uh, <laughs> uh, the next chapter is called The Birth of the Betting Shop. Uh, and this is where you get a lot of kind of like the history of the betting shop that I've already covered, that it comes out of like 19th century horse racing culture um, and how these things kind of operate as social hubs, the legalization in 1961. Uh, but you also get some interesting kind of prehistory here where uh, Cassidy is interviewing people who remember what it was like before. Uh, gambling uh, the betting shops were legalized and uh, how the illegal market worked is that you had a uh, an agent right a guy who was called your runner who uh, would go around to your house right and take your bet and then like the next day would come around and uh, give you your winnings if you had any right so there was like a specific guy who came to you who would come to your house or your place of work uh, and he would do all these things um, and then uh, if he got caught, uh, a, it was not uncommon for, like, a group of his clients to kind of, like, band together and, like, pay his legal fees to get him out of trouble. Or, like, to... What a what an idyllic country. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, or you would... This was the other thing is, like, and this is so wild. Like, you wouldn't necessarily just, like, band together to pay his legal fees. You might even, like, go to uh, I, the precinct i don't know what the hell they call them but you would go to uh the court and you would pose as him and then pay his fines for him right you would just walk (laughs) in and say like oh yeah i'm that guy like here's some money right (laughs) so you would be bailing out your bookie um and one of the changes that uh cassidy observes or like you know observes and also kind of derives from anecdotal evidence from uh men who experienced this kind of changeover from the illegal market to legalized betting shops is that one of the effects it has is it eliminates uh this sense of like solidarity with your bookie and in fact tends to turn the gamblers against the bookie right there now there is a sense of a house that can win mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because the uh, I, 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 all these conversations with these old bookmakers are really fascinating, like these these betting shop operators, um, because uh, the, the they talk about like, you know, they're making decisions on the fly. Mm-hmm. You know, they're making decisions about what bets can be placed and what the terms of those are and how they work. And the betting shop itself is modulating sometimes between the the place where you put the bet and then the bookmaker itself right like mm-hmm. the, you know the the betting agency um you know the 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 organized crime right that's like making this happen mm-hmm. 
And so there's all kinds of just social elements to it. And it really is interesting how there's like a hangover of that in it too, which we'll talk about in later chapters, where like now you're assigned a numeric ranking, mm-hmm. you know, about whether you're a quote unquote good customer or not. But in the past, it was like you stand behind a counter and you make calls about who can make what bet and under what kind of condition. There's a real, it's it's hard to read this and not have some like real nostalgia and like, it was better back then <laughs> kind of vibes to it. And maybe it was like just in a raw sense, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, I, I just can't, I, I can't imagine like someone, I mean, I can't imagine in, in a human sense, but people don't have this relationship with like their weed delivery guy. Right. <laughs> right. That's just like, not how like, you know, the middle class deals with these things, mm-hmm. but that, apparently that was how it was. And also, I guess what I should, what I should say too, is that, uh, Overwhelmingly, this is uh, a, a a lower class phenomenon, or at least is imagined to be a lower class phenomenon in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, that that it is the working class who is doing gambling mm-hmm. broadly, and uh, it is because of them that like this whole operation runs. Which is why that MP said like I've given hope to the poor. Right. Right. Like. Um, part of the way that the conservatives and the neoliberals uh, and new labor, right? Uh, part of the way that they spin uh, the the narrative around uh, uh, legalizing gambling and kind of accelerating uh, gambling's purchase on the UK economy is, well, look, to not do so is paternalistic against the poor. Mm-hmm. They want to do it. So why are you preventing them from doing it? You should let them exercise agency, mm-hmm. which is like the most beautifully... Uh, evil thing (laughs) like that you can spin it yeah right right. let me Uh, let let us here here's something that's not paternalistic let's build a a giant mcdonald's play place for the poor where they can come and gamble as much as they want yeah Uh, but uh yeah she talks to fred the bookmaker who's in his 90s yes and uh, he tells them, or they, you know, she. This is the middle of her telling the story about how you would just go to his house, and it was like the front room in his house with a counter. Yes, in it. and his mother is there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like sometimes uh, you go I in to place her. your bet, and you'd have to like talk with his mom, mm-hmm. and she'd yell at you if you like tracked mud in the house, yes. or if you like kick the the like uh, chair runners or whatever. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, great, great things. And then we track the ch- the transition here between part of the reason for telling this story is like, here's the betting shop. Here's how people used to pay- place bets. Here are all the kind of social interactions that happen there. Right. She tells a story about how uh, because you couldn't like hang out in the betting shop. Part of what you would do is you would like make your bet and hang out in the bar next door. And then the someone would just run your bet over for you. Mm hmm. Make all your bets, boo, 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 and you would just be chilling out and hanging out with people and talking or whatever. And then they, uh, uh, then whenever you know the race was finished or whatever, people would come back, mm-hmm. and you know you would figure it out or you could just go pick it up yourself. So there was this kind of like social element to it that uh, we're going to learn in the, the the following chapters as machines become more and more prominent here, uh, and and the frequency, you know, increasing the frequency of uh the gambling act as that increases there's no room for like any of this social stuff or at least it, it radically transforms what do you think about machine uh or video digital racing whatever this is called yeah the, so the the pivot that happens the, the midway of this chapter 
is that after after betting shops can have screens in them, uh, then they get to have other types of machines in them. So 1996 sees the legalization of what are called in, in UK law uh, machines uh, as amusements with prizes or AWPs, which is a, one way mm. of saying like kind of slot machines or like uh, di- and this is where we get a lot of uh, focus later on uh, digital horse races, which is just uh you know, it, it's what we talked about in uh, the last book, right? Uh, it's just an RNG. Like there is just a, a, a computer program firing off, uh, picking a number that determines whether or not this like field of digital horses or like which of these digital horses come in what place. And uh, this is a uh, improvement over regular horse racing in the sense that uh, real horse races can be reined out. Right. Things can happen that mm-hmm. stop like and and this is a problem for some betting shops where like, you know, maybe there's unexpected bad weather and suddenly all the races for a day are canceled and like all your business is just suddenly gone. So mm-hmm. the like simulated horse races uh, on the one hand, like present a way around that. And on the other hand, uh, receive a lot of pushback or sort of a lot of disparagement from people who are working in the betting shops um precisely because it's just it is just a machine deciding which of these fake horses is going to win and uh, it, it increases the number of times you can bet in a day right the number of gambling acts that can happen in a day um but at the same time uh uh dehumanizes it right which is a weird way of putting it but like there's this sort of like fantasy right of uh as you've already talked about like when you're betting on an actual horse race like knowing the horses uh this is uh this is true also for the people the bookmakers who are figuring the bets right these are people who have Mm -hmm. to know like okay this is a horse that's like this like has this kind of history is this good right and so the odds in this race are so and so um there are no real odds to make here they're all being ca- uh, calculated by the machine right there are no real horses there are no like weather conditions no track conditions that have to be accounted for uh it's just a total crapshoot mm-hmm. yeah i mean there there is a you know both a fantasy but also like a real thing of like if you are tracking the same horse across the season and you know that that horse does better for some reason in damp weather early morning conditions or if the horse is really good at rallying in the afternoon you know, because I think the standard is 20 races a day or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not with the same horses, obviously, but I think that's that's like the, the stable number, something like that. And so, yeah, I mean, you can you can there is knowledge involved in animal gambling. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't participate in animal gambling. I think it's bad. I don't think that we should, uh, you know, create uh, creatures to uh, dance for our amusement. I think that's bad in a general sense. But I would not deny the fact that there is the possibility of skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and judgment involved in uh, animal racing. So yeah, as you're saying, like all these kind of old school people are just up in revolt, right? Uh, they are, uh, you know, angry about it. But everyone who's kind of new blood coming into the industry, they just see the dollar signs because you can increase the frequency of gambling so much by doing this. And it seems like for the most part, people just want. I mean, again, it's the it's the machine zone showing up in slightly different terms. It's not about kind of trading out the world, but it is this kind of enjoyment of just letting the race go and seeing what happens and then going on to the next uh, betting opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's this interesting thing where 
the gambling impulse seems to still be there this kind of thrill of getting to experience the gambling thing the the gain and loss of money but there's not any social exclusion you know that was so important for the shul book mm-hmm. um i guess two other things to to talk about here really quickly one is that uh we we haven't talked about but it showed up in every chapter so far and we should probably at least mention it uh the uk gambling industry extremely misogynistic yes um, like women can't go into a betting shop. Oh, that was, yeah, that was a regulation that I forgot to mention. Yeah. It, <laughs> women aren't allowed in. Mm-hmm. And when they were allowed in, they didn't go in, mm-hmm. um, because it was unseemly and, and it was acceptable. Like if your mother wanted to, someone meant, this is a quote from someone, uh, if your mother wanted to make a bet, that was perfectly fine. No one thought that was like bad. But uh, and, but you would need to have someone go pick the bet up. Mm-hmm. It was unseemly if your mother went to the betting. Right, right. Know, that is the thing. Like, place. you would do that for her. You would go place the bet on your mother's behalf or something. Yeah. And so uh, the whole mechanism, and, so, and, and Cassidy talks about this repeatedly, right, of, like, going in and having to, like, assure them and explain to them and make it clear that, like, I'm here to gamble. Mm-hmm. I know what gambling is, and and it had to be so frustrating. Uh, there's a, there's a kind of what I would call like a UK style here of of uh, under reporting that maybe or like uh, flatly reporting that not under reporting mm-hmm. flatly reporting that right of like I went in they were you know they talked to me like I didn't know anything right. uh, and after assuring kind of them stuff. that I was not a sex worker I <laughs> yes yes. <laughs> repeatedly yeah. right because that because those two industries are intertwined with one another mm-hmm. right um uh it, it, as she explains and so yeah it, she had to repeatedly explain that to people but once once uh people understood that she was a serious gambler or someone who could gamble seriously maybe is the, the way of putting it and being involved there then it seems like she was able to kind of make her way in and only get uh mansplained to or rudely talked to every now and again mm-hmm. Um, but she's also going to a lot of different kinds of sites and locations, right? And so I, it seems like, unfortunately, that was a constantly repeated behavior over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a thing worth uh, kind of putting a, putting a, a, a flag in. Uh, the other thing that I just didn't really ever think about, but obviously this is true, is uh, horse racing. The economics of that thing are uh, bewildering. Yeah. <laughs> It costs, uh, how much was it? 20,000 pounds a horse a year? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Like beyond buying it, just to take care of a horse. Yeah. And the, the way that she puts it is like so obvious, but but I, I just never thought about it before. A bad horse that never wins is just as expensive <laughs> to take care of as a great horse that wins every time. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, like uh, racing like horses. Of course that's true. Racing horses are animals that take a lot of specific care right it's not just like a horse on your farm like these are these are animals that are trained that are maintained in certain circumstances uh it's a whole ordeal (laughs) yeah and so it's just like so it's this multi-million dollar industry that's really upheld by like the bourgeois or not not even the bourgeoisie right the aristocracy Mm -hmm. um and they just kind of do it it seems like like based on everything i'm i I see here it's basically for prestige and fun yeah and that's the that's the origin of it in the 19th century as she points out is that like horse racing gets its start in the uk where you have like two aristocratic uh uh, people who are like hey i have this really cool horse you have that really cool horse like let's race them and see which one is the fastest incidentally this is also how like uh uh, car racing gets started in the united or in in the united states uh but um with manufacturers right um trying Mm -hmm. to one-up each other uh but then the uh 
So like people here like, oh, so and so is racing their horse against this other horse. And then people like in the community start placing bets on it. And this is kind of like, you know, the the vernacular way that horse racing in the UK builds up to kind of a cultural spectacle. Ad time. This show is uh, supported by you, the listeners. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about what we are up to, you can go to rangedtouch.com. You can also go down to the description below this episode, wherever you're listening to it, and click a little link there. Uh, we're Patreon-supported. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash rangetouch. Again, there's a link in the description below this episode, wherever you're listening to it. And uh, if you do that, you can um, give us money. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate that. At the level of $3 a month, uh, you can get access to our show notes. So there's all kinds of stuff that we always take notes on in the show that we don't, uh, uh, you know, we don't get to because we can only talk for so long, uh, even though that might be shocking to you. And uh, so, yeah, so that's what you can get there. And all, we do a bunch of other shows as well that you might want to check out. I promise you, if you like Game Study Study Buddies, you'll like our other shows like Just King Things uh, or Too Much Future or Homestuck Made This World. Um, you know, we're doing these big, weird, academic uh, informed projects that are fun to listen to. And if you enjoy Game Study Study Buddies, I promise you're going to like those too. Um, also, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or any other um, platform that allows you to give a review, uh, why don't you give us five stars? If you give us a five-star review, I will read a review on the podcast. Ooh. And uh, let's see what we got here. We got, um, um, I, I you know, I always like to do one that's a little silly. I, I like a fun one, but it doesn't seem like there's a funny or a, a, a rude one. <laughs> Um, so Our listeners are just to... not rude enough. They're they're not. Look, there's no teenage Dave cosplayer who's leaving reviews for uh, game study. Teenage Rocher Calois cosplayer. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is from uh, Hesset Xalians. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Uh, build your own syllabus. My college doesn't offer any dedicated game studies courses, so game study study buddies has acted as both a preliminary syllabus and an introduction to discourses around the text that has allowed me to guide my studies from there. Great work, Cameron and Michael. Aww. And thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for listening. We, we appreciate it, and we're glad we can help. And, of course, this show is always just a platform or a springboard or a diving board for you to go and explore other stuff. Uh, this is not the be-all, end-all of game studies, and uh, so, but hopefully we can lead you down some interesting paths. Um, Michael, do you have anything you want to say here in the ad break before we go back to the episode? <laughs> Nothing apart from thanks so much for listening. Uh, thank you for uh, listening to us talk for a long, long time about books. I know it's kind of a niche way to interact with a podcast, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Thanks. Goodbye. Ooh. Or back to the episode. What do you think about the Oliver Cromwell anecdote? Uh, which one was that? I think I liked it, but... <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't think I have it right in front of me, unfortunately. But, so, Oliver Cromwell... Oh, yes, uh, yes, yes. Bands, yeah, banned bands... racing in 1654. This is very Oliver Cromwell. They also banned the theater. Um, not because he was a puritanical killjoy, but because he was afraid of the revolutionary potential of large gatherings of men on fast horses. The failed Jacobite Rebellion in 1715 rallied at Dilston and races i love that i love the idea that like too many men with horses get together and they just start getting rowdy yeah i mean <laughs> this is i mean and it's not just horse racing that's also an anxiety about the theater right uh, uh mm -hmm. essex during the reign of elizabeth tries to start his rebellion with a performance of uh shakespeare <laughs> uh -oh. yeah 
Um, uh, you should do that. Should be the book you do, Michael. You should be a, a, a history of of rowdy men <laughs> and the games they play. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, it's a uh, wild times. Um, next chapter. Yeah, the next chapter is the rise of the machines. So after uh, AWPs, amusements with prizes, get uh, allowed in the bet shops. Um, basically the rate, so this is another thing that happens throughout this book. Um, once a kind of form of, uh, regulation or legalization happens, you also get a, a group of people who are rushing to find the holes in that regulation to find ways to get, uh, uh, things out of that regulation that, uh, are maybe not in the spirit, but to the letter. So once, uh, these, these machines with prizes are allowed, basically, uh, you get these two guys who are trying to, well, you get a whole sort of industry or like little sub industry of people who work in the bet shops trying to figure out like, what are the, what are other ways we can use RNG gambling to our benefit? Um, and this specifically ends up focusing on uh, this firm that inv that invents things that legally get called uh, FOBTs or fixed odds betting terminals. Um, they're invented, I think, in 1996 and then uh, become more widespread in, in the next couple of years uh, that expand uh, beyond just showing like digital horse races or digital dog races. These are essentially slot machines. Um, they also show like I, I looked these up to see it's usually a, a, a variety of games on them. Uh, mm -hmm. So I looked this up to kind of see that and it's like, you know, it's like a virtual roulette wheel or things like that. Um, yeah, you get to choose your own game is what sounds like there's like options menu and you get to choose like what kind of experience you want to have. Yes. And then you like get involved in it. Mm -hmm. and, and fixed odds is important because uh, the, like horse race, like betting on sports or uh, horse races or whatever are are variable odds, right? I mean, horse racing odds from the betting shop perspective changes over time the closer you get to the event. Mm -hmm. And you get locked in at specific rates. So we learn a little bit more about that later on. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, uh, this, this is what I said about, like, the... Le like regulation and legalization uh, gives birth to uh, quote unquote innovators, right? Who try to uh, come up with something even more exploitative or uh, 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 weird uh, that is fitting into that regulation, but also kind of like pressing the limits of what the betting shop is. And Cassidy mm -hmm. notes uh, not only in like her own field notes, but also gets this anecdotally from other people that once uh, FOBTs are in the shops, uh, there is a new clientele, which are people who come to the betting shops just to use the machines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and these are like the the formal equivalent to the people who are going into the convenience stores in Vegas. Yes. And just hanging out on the machines. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like a whole different crowd of people who are just there to play the games. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, ascension, essentially. Yeah. And so we get like uh, a whole like so in the previous chapter, one of the things that Cassidy points out is that the rise of um, automated and electronic things in the bet shops um, are like corrosive to an older form of like human to human trust. Like when you went into the bet shop and uh, the bookie told you the odds, like you had to trust the bookie to place your bet, right? That's just, that was the nature of the thing. Like the, the, the odds were being figured out there. Uh, and it was all kind of human to human trust. The, the bookie had to trust you to pay in and so on. And, 
Um, once this becomes like automated and electronic, uh, we see a decrease in human to human trust and like specifically just people trusting or in some cases not trusting the machines. Um, and then sort of the from the other direction, then in this chapter, we start seeing kind of the uh, ways that people who work in bet shops uh, dehumanize uh, the people who use the gambling machines. This is a quote from a manager. Uh, These are not punters like you and me. They are not thinking humans. They're life's losers. Yeah. I I mean, it does seem like everyone involved in the betting shop, you know, especially these kind of career people, they think that people are just going and pumping money into machines to lose them. Yeah. And to be frank, we do know that that is the case. That is true. Right. That is like the material situation. Like that is what these machines are designed to do. Yeah. And so and so they immediately associate that with like, I mean, it's dehumanizing quite literally, mm-hmm. right? They are not thinking humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like where there is, well, I don't know. I guess Shul did kind of in quoting from like... Uh, floor managers and things like that, like pit bosses there. There was a similar kind of vibe there of like, they did not call them not thinking humans, but they certainly had a a dim opinion of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe that's a shared thing. Right. Well, and both in in either case, like I I think it would would be because it's uh, kind of the the reflexive grounding for the responsible gambling myth, right? That these are people who Mm -hmm. are just not responsible Mm -hmm. enough. They are lacking something uh, that makes you fully human and capable of gambling responsibly. And part of the split there, too, is that, again, like we said, a lot of people who are doing betting or involved in more traditional forms of gambling in the UK, as, as Cassidy shows over and over again, they don't think they're gamblers. Mm-hmm. They would not call themselves a gambler, whereas I think most of them call the people who are using these machines gamblers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's part of that too, right, where it's like this is such a different form to whatever the socially more socially acceptable version is that there's a, a quick and clear divide for them. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think about these secret numbers devised by Lava Lamps? <laughs> I, I was so confused by that. So this is before the FOBTs get uh, introduced and perfected. Cassidy has this like offhand mention of like all of the ways that people are trying to come up with like randomized events for people to bet on. And something like I, I wanted more about this. How are people betting on uh, Lava Lamps? Like what? <laughs> yeah, because they because they have to be uh, part of the thing for the fixed odds, right? Is they have to be. It can't just be fake for that machine, right? right. They're like calling into a centralized server mm-hmm. that is determining like what the quote unquote race or the bet is for that individual event. You know, like th- those things are are written in stone. That random number is written in stone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the thing is like, how do you, uh, you have to create a system that's not just guess what number I'm thinking of, right? That Like, that's the legal scenario you have to be be uh, avoiding, right? The arbitrariness of uh, something that, that is not standardized, right? So, uh, well, the, I mean, the lava lamp part, that, that would make sense because everyone could, you could use anything that, like, randomly moves or sprays to create random number generation, right? Mm-hmm. You just, like set a frequency rate and then like areas on the areas in the lava lamp, you know, right? Like either quadrants or whatever stacked vertically. And just whenever the gloop passes through it or hits it (laughs) uh, at a certain frequency interval, that counts as a certain number. And then that gives you, you know, however many uh, uh, digits you need in a string. Like I could imagine how you could do it. Now, would that be compelling? I don't know. Right. But it, it, it does create a standardization in the sense of like, 
that is a material thing that happened in the world and it is unchangeable because it did occur. And so then therefore, you know, you can get your random number from it. Uh, I get why they just used random number generators instead, but that is, I <laughs> shout out to whoever, like whatever fluid dynamics, you know, a PhD student, they got to work on that, uh, with the, the gambling operations. Yeah. I, I would love to learn more about that. If you know anything about this, please send it to us, twitter.com slash range touch. Yeah. We would love to learn more about lava lamps as random number generators. I want to see the Guy Ritchie movie about this. <laughs> You know, I got to be honest, that is a huge amount of my, like, reference for any of this is like, all right, how did this look in the Guy Ritchie movie? (laughs) Like, I want to see the Guy, like, the Guy Ritchie film about the guy who comes up with the genius plan to use lava lamps as a random number generator. uh, And then they're totally wiped out when uh, FOBTs get legalized. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, and it's about, like, a heist to destroy the first FOBT. Yes. Um. But uh, I, I really, so I, I, there's that, right? There's like the standardization of these machines showing up. Um, and then uh, I really like that she like plays this out. Like, well, what does that do? Well, first of all, you had to change what the machines were because people would kick the shit out of them and destroy them mm-hmm. because it made them angry, um, extremely angry. Uh, right. And that's, a, that's another thing, right? That the introduction of machines seems to cause is just like people being violent to the machines in the shop. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, people, it seems like there's an uptick in aggression around all of that. And she says, look, of course, in the history of uh, gambling and betting in the UK, of course, there's like violence associated with that. Of course, uh, people get angry about their bets, but there's a whole social system involved in it, right? Like, if you if you make a bet on a horse and it doesn't go right for you and you start decking people, well, guess who doesn't get to bet anymore? And probably guess who doesn't get to bet anywhere in this local area, you know, due to either, mm-hmm. uh, you know, similar people being involved in it, you know, via organized crime or just word getting around. You know, that it's a social mm-hmm. system that word gets around <laughs> about people. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's there's a set of social standards that that prevents the worst behavior from people. But that all flies right out the window when it's just a machine um, because mm-hmm. you can do whatever you want. Free um, bets are a big thing here, too. Um, uh, yeah. She has a lot of quotes here from how uh, one of the, the uh, ways of getting people involved in machine betting is through uh, free bets and uh, uh, promotional campaigns and things like that. And yeah, that's exactly how it works now. Uh, you can go to uh, your sports betting online place of choice in the U.S. now, and you can get quite a bit of initial money uh, to, to bet with. There was a thing in the Super Bowl. Didn't that happen in Massachusetts where they like send out mailers for everyone to get free $5 or something? Uh, they might have i don't know i i probably threw that away if i got it (laughs) yeah there were a couple states where for the super bowl recently some of the larger sports betting uh websites were sending out mailers to be like here's money just come bet Mm -hmm. you can just do whatever you want just bet for fun and like Mm -hmm. it's straight up just a free taste and and like all of these uh the people she's quoting they are liking it to the drug you know the drug trade essentially yes Uh, Mm -hmm. they know what they're know what they're doing there um, uh, my wife is texting me from the other room and saying it's New Jersey. <laughs> 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 Thank you, brave wife. Mm-hmm. I, the thing, the last thing I thought was really interesting in this chapter is where where Cassidy goes to that conference. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Yes. <laughs> she goes to that conference and she's like, and it's everyone talking about responsible gambling and how like that matters and how you can create these machines that like generate more, more money. And she, um, uh, in, 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 it is a gambling machine, uh, company like owner who has crunched his own numbers and is like presenting mm-hmm. that as like academic fact. Right. And um, uh, so, quote, he had no academic track record that might have qualified him to undertake a project of this kind, nor was it clear how he had secured the commission from the RGT, so the, the, uh, the gambling commission. He had been mm-hmm. crunching the numbers of his, comp- of his customers looking for evidence of harmful play, because uh, he's disproving the idea that there's, like, dangerous gambling going on for individuals. At the launch, mm-hmm. he was presenting those findings to him in front of policymakers, the press, and other researchers. How did you manage this conflict of interest? I asked him during the questions from the audience. He looked confused and said, what we've presented is what the data says? It's not us speaking, it's what the data told us. Mm-hmm. The bookmaker, the bookmakers in the row in front of me turned around and scowled at me, as did several fellow academics. My question was absolute anathema to the consensual atmosphere cultivated by this event and others like them, run by the RGT, now called Gamble Aware, and based on partnership, collaboration, mutual learning, and co-production. Um, so the idea here is that, like, even asking questions about like where does evidence of machine gambling come from gets gets you treated like a pariah. Um, right. Well, and this is also part of the bigger uh, thing that's being talked about here, which is that um, so we've got the the neoliberal impulse to deregulate. People can make their own choices. And it's like, hey, uh, if there's a problem with this industry, who should uh, be empowered to like monitor and deal with that? Why? Why not the industry itself? Why not let them self-regulate? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, we have like this guy from the industry crunching his own numbers being like, there's no problem here. And at this conference that is supposed to be about addressing problem gambling, but is, uh, just filled with all these conflicts of interest of, uh, academics having to work or like academics who are working with the industry and the industry, which is like reporting its own data and of course making it look favorable to them and not even necessarily realizing that that's what they're doing because of the ideology of data, right? Mm-hmm. As, as kind of the uh, objective witness. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about this at the beginning, but in the intro, uh, Cassidy says that part of the reason for the, that uh, she chose to wrote this, write this book is that she took a grant from one of these organizations. Uh, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Uh, no, I don't. She took a grant for one of these organizations to do some research and then she did it and presented it to them and then they gagged her and and told her that she couldn't report on it. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That's in, uh, oh, let me, I'll give a page number. Uh, uh, six page six. Uh, first research was enabled by gambling charity, a gambling oriented charity. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, when I first uh, okay, sorry, I'll say this on chapter uh, page six. Uh, the first grant I received to work on gambling came from a joint venture between uh, a bunch of organizations. Blah blah blah. When I shared my findings with the RIGT, I was told that I could not speak in public about them without first receiving written clearance. This is this injunction is far from unusual. Charities, Quangos, I don't know what that is, and government departments all over the world with responsibilities for funding gambling research routinely impose conditions on academic freedoms. However, as a young naive researcher, the experience had a profound effect on me and on the direction of my work. So yeah, did you know Cassidy was that person in some ways, right? For a very short time of like doing this research that runs against the 
the industry's interests funded by the industry and then being explicitly gagged. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is what Scholl talks about as well in, in her book toward the end that we talked about there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the most polite, brutal academic takedown and call out <laughs> yeah. I've ever read. Um, but Cassidy has in some ways been on the inside of that. And I thought that was really interesting to learn about that. That's part of the reason for doing the book is like, Hey, I'm, I'm showing all this off. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter five, the responsible gambling myth. Yeah, this uh, is I mean, it's very similar in some ways to the way that like Shul ends up approaching this idea mm-hmm. because uh, surprise, right? The the responsible gambling myth is extremely useful to the industry because it allows them to respond to every single criticism with, uh, well, that was just a person who wasn't responsible enough. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but the thing that uh, ends up being really interesting and unique here in, in this context well, I'll just quote this. Uh, this is from page 91. Uh, the effect of equating gambling regulation with consumer protection, because this is this is one of the effects of saying that, like, well, the industry gets to self-regulate, right? We have all of these organizations that are about addressing problem gambling that are run by industry interests. Um, so to equate gambling regulation with consumer protection is to place responsibility for problems and their solutions with individuals while the structural features of gambling markets, including the supply of opportunities to gamble and the forms taken by these opportunities are de-emphasized, uh, meaning that the pattern is, um, we can all agree that there are dangers to gambling. This is, bu- this is part of being like modern and open-minded, right? We all know that people gamble and we also know that all people, uh, maybe could, uh, potentially have some sort of problem with gambling. So what we need to do is just promote responsible gambling. We're going to promote gambling, but just make sure you're doing it really, really well, right? Be responsible about it. Um, and if you happen to have a misstep, that is your fault, <laughs> Not ours, not society's. It is your fault. Uh, And if you do have that misstep, don't worry, um, because there are already these pre-existing treatment programs for people in your exact situation. There is never anything that is preventative, right? It's about, like, uh, opening the floodgates, saying, like, here's a place where a bunch of people can go get hurt. Don't worry. uh, We've got a first aid station set up somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yep. You should expect um, to get stabbed and robbed. Yep. And that's the 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 other big thing that uh, uh, she's pointing out is that like the the like the 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 high emotions, the danger uh, that uh, can result from uh, gambling that gets pushed off, not just onto the individuals who are doing the gambling, but the people who work in the bet shops. Uh, so uh, she talks about there's a bit uh, on page 102. She mentions um, she interviewed 47 managers of uh betting shops and of that 47 36 of them had been robbed at least once but one guy had been robbed 11 times yes and and he's like he seems he's like very aware of how sad that is he said he considered himself very unlucky he's like that guy in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy who's constantly followed around by a rain cloud Like, that's his, like, that's his, like, perspective on the world. He's like, I understand that it's really, I'm just really unlucky, but man. (laughs) Yeah, it's not good. I don't like it. Yeah, I feel bad for him. I don't don't want to get robbed even once uh, Mm -hmm. in a bet shop. But yeah, it's interesting. I thought this this chapter had some of the more interesting uh, direct anthropological work in it, just because Mm -hmm. she worked in a bunch of different betting shops, and so she had a good sense for it. Yeah, It's it's interesting the way that she's kind of able to draw out the thing there. Also, like, all the different... uh, 
uh, racial and class dynamics that come out in the shops themselves. And, you know, mm-hmm. she, she uh, kind of analyzes all of the racist and racialized language that shows up here that, that when these social groups run into each other in the bedding shop, weird things happen, you know, weird social stuff happens. Um, and also that like money becomes weird and free. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, is this the chapter where she talks about the like nine friends who hang out and they all distribute their winnings evenly all the time? Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, they're, they're like the regulars who are always there and they're like hanging out together. And when they win big, they always split up their winnings amongst themselves. Uh, and then they found out that, <laughs> uh, so for the book, she asked them, Hey, can you just like write down all your bets so I can like know about it? And they, I guess they said, sure. And then they found out they were all being highly subsidized by one guy. And, and the way that, and, and so that like bothered them. Cause like, Oh, we're all essentially living off the winnings of this one dude or, you know, of our winnings. A lot of them are coming from one guy. And then apparently they like subtended that by saying, well, he's just got really good judgment when it comes to the horses. He's just really mm-hmm. good at horses. Like, what do you, what do you expect? He's good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was a interesting thing. Um, let's see. Oh, there's another. So, uh, uh, in, in line with violence increasing in shops where machines are introduced, uh, there are, of course, like locational issues here, right? There are like mm-hmm. uh, uh, rougher uh, neighborhoods where there are still bedding shops. And she says that uh, in, in, when she she's work, she works in like very distinct types of places throughout this kind of field work. Um, and she talks about how in, uh, uh, say, like more depressed areas uh, or neighborhoods, um, the bedding shops very clearly rely more on the machines with people just kind of staying behind their bulletproof glass and not interacting with the customers at all because the customers tend to be more volatile, tend to be um, in worse situations and like uh, potentially more violent. I think this is the one, uh, I think this is the chapter where we get the anecdote you already mentioned about mm-hmm. the guy who was on the machine and they were running up to closing time yeah. and he like would not get off. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And he starts like kicking everything and that, yeah, that makes everyone run back behind the, the, uh, the glass. And then he, uh, like he starts like openly weeping and like smashes the glass in the door on the way out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just this kind of big violent outburst, and and he had lost like four hundred pounds or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like someone who was like bombing that you know and losing heavily, 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 um, in a, in you know in an economically depressed area. It sounds like right. Mm-hmm. So this is someone who's who is actively having their life ruined here, and uh, you know so they react negatively and violently to mm-hmm. that. And like I you know I have strong empathy for that. Yeah. And like one of the big problems she also points out is that uh, in situations where uh, people in betting shops are robbed or assaulted or, you know, injured in any whenever anything happens, uh, there is actually a tendency to not involve or to not want to involve the police because it is often the assumption of the police that when anything bad happens in a betting shop, like the person who works there is in on it. Yeah, there, yes, and it, well, it'll hurt your employment, too, right? Mm-hmm. So your ability to, to, to get employed later on, uh, you know, they look at your incident reports, so there's a reason not to do it. Also, the industry across the board d- discourages people from doing it because you don't want the police coming to the bedding shops because it makes mm-hmm. the industry itself look bad, 
and all of these uh, events, it seems like, are cataloged nationally, right? You know, so mm-hmm. they can look to, at these stats. And so it's bad business, you know, quote unquote, to everyone. Um, and I really like here in this chapter that she points out that, like, a lot of the mitigation tactics, like, so number one, uh, the industry is able to point to these, like, violent stats and be like, look, there's no, there's no problems here. And then she says, well, actually, if you work there, you know you're not supposed to report it. So that's why the stats are low. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that the industry has all of these mitigation mechanisms, like um, people who work in the bedding shops who are generally behind bulletproof glass, right? Mm-hmm. Or behind plexiglass. They might not have to be bulletproof in the UK. But behind plexiglass, those uh, you know, the, those uh, people are uh, expected by national standards to like walk around the bedding shop and talk to the people on the machines. Mm-hmm. And if like someone on the machine is violently shaking it and screaming and kicking it, it is deeply dangerous for you to do that. And so, you know, she basically says that the the numbers, the way that the the industry uh, counts, you know, the negative effects of gambling. Uh, makes it look so much more squeaky clean than it is. And the reality of it is that none of the mitigation tactics for like problem gambling are even possible to implement because the threat of violence and the threat of negative outcomes is so high. She also mm-hmm. tells the story of a woman who got stabbed in the neck and went to work the next day. Mm-hmm. Right. So like they're the, the way there again, there's this kind of like almost UK style of like just flatly saying some of these things that kind of robs them of their uh, emotional resonance. Be- I mean, I guess those are like, highly distressing things that I just described, but those are not uncommon is what she's saying, right? Like mm-hmm. these things that are like gratuitously violent, um, you know, spectacularly violent um, are part of the industry and they are not reported because the industry needs to suppress that in order to make it seem like, Hey, most everything that's happening is good old fashioned, responsible gambling. And the outliers are true outliers where in fact, the kind of frequency rate of bad outcomes in the betting shop is much higher than anyone wants to admit. Mm-hmm. The bookmakers lament. Yeah. So this is uh, uh, this is an interesting chapter because it plugs back into some of the stuff we've already talked about uh, with the bookmakers in general. Uh, but in uh, the the bigger scheme, this is the book or this is the chapter about how uh, when the gambling industry got disrupted by the internet. Um, it did not happen overnight. It was not even necessary. It was not even necessarily maybe an easy fight, right? I think there's mm-hmm. a way that, uh, narratives of like technological disruption, um, tend to present themselves as just like happening very cleanly. And because of Cassidy's kind of mandate with this book, uh, she's dedicated to showing how like, uh, no, not really. Right. Uh, it, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen quickly. It happened in this weird piecemeal way where actually the established bookmakers had enough of a foothold that they could hold on to certain things. And it was about like electronic markets um, sort of maneuvering around the uh, the like encampments, right, that traditional bookmakers have are, had already made uh, that allowed them to uh, disrupt. And this took time. It took uh, a sort of uh, weird lateral moves. Uh, is this the chapter? Yeah, this is the chapter where Betfair comes into play. So uh, 
how things work before, of course, is we have like actual bookmakers who are in the shops who are uh, figuring out their odds, like odds are being figured uh, comparatively, right? There are uh, bookmakers in conversation with one another with other odds makers. Uh, people are kind of like th there's like a whole system of what uh, Cassidy calls like embodied practice, right, of actual human beings. Uh, who are making these odds about not only the events, but also about the um, people who are placing the bets. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, be making calls about, like, you come up to place your bet, um, you have a talk with the bookmaker, and the bookmaker makes a judgment call. Like, is this a bet that I want to take? Like, does this seem like a person who is uh, uh, going to be... Um, like good on their word is going to be able to pay in what they can is not going to be a huge hassle if they lose and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, uh, then we have a uh, bet fair, which is kind of this like online person to person, uh, uh, app website. I'm not quite sure what it is. Yeah. Um, website. Yeah. So in the year 2000, <laughs> yeah, in the year 2000, it comes in and it suddenly allows people to make bets person to person. And as a service, it takes a commission off of, of the winnings. And so no matter what, Betfair gets paid because someone always wins the bet. Whereas in a traditional uh, uh, bookmaker setting, um, the bookmaker has to like think through like, is this going to uh, be to the overall benefit of this bookkeeping establishment, right? Like there's more, there's specific skin in the game uh, for the party who is fielding the bet um, rather than this just, rather than that being kind of like an almost disembodied service that has no skin in the game. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a bookmaker is fundamentally betting against the better. Yes. Right, it, it is a bet again, it, between two agents, right? Mm -hmm. and whereas the, you know, the the system you just talked about, what, fair bet is what it's called? Betfair. Betfair, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Betfair, mm -hmm. what a better name. Uh, it's, it's platformization, right? Yes. Like, they monetize the platform, the end. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that maybe this is like a gap in uh the discussions of platformization in games right so like i'm thinking here about um daniel joseph's uh battle pass capitalism stuff mm -hmm. which is like awesome people should check that out i don't but i don't know if dan talks about the the betting industry and it seems pretty clear to me that like if you look at valve or if you look at battle pass work in games now that that uh, we have to look at the way that that uh, all of this stuff. I mean, we are talking about this with the show book, but look, I mean, platforms monetizing the platform and monetizing the um, the agreement itself, monetizing the contract. It comes in the year two thousand. That is just so ahead of all of these other kind of platform uh, mm -hmm. decisions that are made across the the industry, across these kind of allied industries of of. Um, you know, I don't know, uh, wrenchier extraction, right? So mm -hmm. um, I, I would love for someone to to kind of draw those connections. And maybe they have, if, if you're an academic or you know an academic who is drawing connections between uh, the gambling industry in the early 2000s and uh, where we are now with um, kind of, you know, uh, games as service model uh, extraction, let me know. I would love to read that work. I'd mm -hmm. uh, love to check it out. But uh, I really like this chapter a lot. I, I thought this was such an interesting thing about how odds are managed in like the different setups, right? Which is like they're for horse racing is, you know, one of the ones she goes to, right? Like for horse racing, there are the odds at the track mm -hmm. and the odds at the track are what everyone kind of has to bounce off of because those are like generally agreed upon. But you can make each individual bookmaker 
is able to set their own odds um, or their own kind of payouts based on what those odds are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some, some bookmakers are going to have a better deal because they don't necessarily agree so heavily with what's happening at the track on the ground or, or they want to get more people in or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are all these decisions made on the gambler's side about who you want to bet with and how you want to make that happen. And then there are all these like very, as you were saying, very granular decisions about like, uh, is this person a first time better? Well, if they're a first time better, then we're not going to allow them to come in and just make some massive bet that has, you know, one to 25 odds. But because uh, the one I think they talk about is a, a bet that's at one to 25 for 7,000 pounds, which mm-hmm. is like a huge amount of money, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, if that bet goes, if they win, uh, that's way, way, way too much. And so there's this kind of familiarity that's associated with it. And then as this becomes more of a technology corporation operation, mm-hmm. um, people start being assigned scores. You right. know, how good of a customer are you? And good is defined by how much money do you lose with us? Right. And that's the middle state of uh mm-hmm like the disruption here where as the traditional betting shops move into kind of what uh uh, she calls like the data-driven model of like seeing how frequently a certain person wins or loses and then giving them a score uh like rather than the bookmaker being like you know you're a person who often wins but i'm gonna let you have this bet or like Mm -hmm. uh you know maybe not keeping quite the the data-driven model in their mind suddenly everyone has a score and it's like oh this person has a score of whatever it means they win too much it means we can't take bets from them because it's Mm -hmm. too much of a risk for us and so when betfair comes around and makes it person to person like their tagline is you know like betfair winners welcome yeah right playing off of that sense of resentment of like you don't let me play because i'm too good at gambling yeah which is uh, yeah that is the case yeah (laughs) like straight up (laughs) Um, this is not where it happens. This actually happens earlier in the book. But wh- what is so interesting to me is that the the increased technologization of the industry and the acceleration of what's going on here, it means that there are people who do not understand how gambling works mm-hmm. who are at the head of these companies mm-hmm. or in positions of power. Earlier in the book, she talks about someone who is involved in the digital racing who cannot explain odds to her. Mm-hmm. And he's explaining, oh, no, it's for the, uh, the the gambling machines. And he's like, well, it matters if players can see the, that the last three uh, of the, you know, of the whatever spins came up black in the end, because that means that a red's coming up. Right. And he like truly believes that. Right. Yes. Which is like nonsense. That That's not how randomization works. It's not how odds work. That's not how anything. He can't explain it to her. But he is so, uh, you know. Um, sold on the idea and ultimately you know this is the the beauty of uh, gambling I guess right ultimately on the business end and on the consumer end it doesn't matter if you understand it uh-huh. <laughs> you just have to know what the inputs and outputs are and he's very profitable so it doesn't matter if he understands it or not but but there's this kind of sense that there there what in gambling and betting in the UK there was at one point a system that was understandable and social and operative and allowed for some interesting wiggle room to happen. Mm -hmm. And every moment of uh, innovation uh, that has happened basically since the year of 1985 has robbed uh, the industry of anything interesting in that way and Mm -hmm. has, you know, basically made it, um, uh, you know, did you guess the, the digital number or not? 
yeah. or or did you make the 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 right type kind of bet in in the right kind of statistical way? I really love the the section here too, where they talk about how even the really big bookmakers, the really big traditional bookmakers, um, <laughs> that they. If the odds are bad at the track, they will just send a bunch of money down to the track, mm-hmm. <laughs> and have and have people go around and make big bets, uh, you know, to change the odds with the, with the actual uh, bookkeepers that are at the track, uh, to change the track odds that they're responsive to. Um, and I thought that was amazing that you can just buy your way in, but that also means you're putting a huge amount of money into the industry. And so everyone's cool with it. And mm-hmm. like, it all kind of comes out in the wash anyway, right? It literally changes the odds, which means that the bookmakers as the, it gets closer to race time are going to make, be making different types of bets. Um, and so, so for them, that's not a problem, right? It's not them. It's not them literally paying to change the odds. It is them shifting the market for betting as you get closer to the race. Which is just like the wildest thing to me. <laughs> yeah, the 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 overall kind of shift that I think is worth underscoring, as uh, Cassidy puts it forth, is like we we see a change from uh, traditional like bookmakers to uh, the phrase that she uses is city traders, yeah. which would be equivalent more or less to like in the United States saying Wall Street traders, right? Yeah. Like uh, the gambling industry uh, is becoming financialized. Uh, in ideology and in kind of approaches and techniques. Mm-hmm. Chapter seven. Uh, online in Gibraltar. No, I mean, the basic structure here uh, is that um, Gibraltar. Uh, so what happens in like the early 2000s is that online gambling becomes like a possibility. And the UK is uh, really far ahead of basically everyone else on the planet. Um, when it comes to legalizing online gambling, I think when they do that is in, I mean, they have several years of like big question mark stuff going on, but Mm -hmm. they, with the gambling act in 2007, they're like, okay, this seems good. Um, so what has happened is that places that are not in, uh, mainline mainland UK. So a lot of Caribbean nations and then Gibraltar, uh, run, uh, like phone based betting shops. Mm hmm. That turn like so, like telebetting that then in the early th- 2000s turn into like hubs for online gambling, so running gambling websites. Um, and then, uh, and so the question for this chapter is like, what happens to the idea of responsible gambling when the social is completely out, out of the scenario, right? Like you're making bets over the phone or you're just making bets on the internet and there's no social relation whatsoever. Um, you know, what do uh, gamblers look like and what does the gambling industry look like? Yeah, probably the most incredible fact out of this chapter is that the UK is the only open market for online gambling in the world. Yeah, I had no idea. Like, yeah, no, didn't know that either. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, there's also uh, uh, this incredible uh, dude Right. That she knows <laughs> Dan, uh, Dan um, uh, who is and I'm just going to quote here from page 132. Dan is a 45 year old entrepreneur whom I scraped up off the pavement and decanted into a taxi when he had got drunk and been mugged after an industry party in London in 2010. And he's like a ripped jeans, sunglasses, asshole. Yeah. Like so, like self-avowed. Like I'm not I'm not saying this. Like he he says that about himself. Mm-hmm. And they like they uh park over the the border and then walk into Gibraltar. 
and uh, he's just like an industry dude. And this is it's it's Silicon Valley, but for gambling is yes. like the the pitch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everyone is involved in the industry who like works in this little region. Uh, he can apparently determine if they're, they work in the gambling industry by their haircuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and like c- continues to prove it to her over and over again. He seems like a very annoying, um, individual, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah. And, and you know, the, the culture itself is defined by, um, uh, kind of flat structures, high money, very wall streety. Right. So like a lot of money involved and a lot of partying and drinking. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wrote in my notes, it sounds like a lot like the video game industry. Right, right. Um, uh, erasing boundaries between work and play and, yeah. like, professional uh, sociality and sort of, like, informal sociality. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they... It's just kind of about... I mean, it's, this is a fine-grained chapter that we don't have to get super into, but uh, it's just about, like, talking to people about how they make these systems. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that the same stuff that we saw uh, show up in machine gambling in the Shoal book around one of the ways of intensifying gambling is to create all these like options and choices for players to engage in. So mm-hmm. it makes them feel like they're having an impact, even though they really don't. Um, that That's what's going on in uh, 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 traditional betting here with these mm-hmm. on, when online betting comes in, there's this kind of proliferation of choices of how to position your bet and do all kinds of stuff. So that's one way of doing it and to um, decrease churn to get people involved and feel like their skill involved. Um, and this is also where phone game. Uh, so there, so some of the companies here are designing gambling apps to be played on your phone. And mm-hmm. then a lot of those players don't seem to even think that they're gambling. They're just playing with, you know, diamonds or coins or whatever. And you can see a lot of the argument. I think it would be very easy here to look at... Uh, um, the mobile game industry again in the U S and then look at the way that they design gambling games and the way they talk about them here. And they're exactly the same. The the only difference is we like uh, play with gyms that you purchase for money. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we like uh, roulette wheel, those things, but it's the exact same game design systems. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, very, very uh, related. Yeah. There's a big thing in here about like um, uh, the type of marketing that you have is really important, right? Getting TV ads for these online gambling game or these like phone gambling games was really important to like convince people that uh, these things were safe, right? That they were legitimate. And then nevertheless, we have people losing tons of money. Uh, we get a, a, a couple of people who are talked to here who are basically kind of like uh, equivalent to the luck ambassadors we we met in the shul book right the people mm-hmm. who walk around the casino floor and sort of like do pr and like check in on people and give out like free meals and stuff uh these these people are kind of like assigned to a like portfolio of vips which is to say people who spend a lot of money and tend to lose a lot of money mm-hmm. um and they like personalize the marketing, right? They like have phone calls with them. Uh, they talk about like vacations that they've been on. And, and the entire time, like we get these quotes from uh, and these, I think, are largely women who are, are in these positions. Uh, there's a woman who says something like, you know, I don't like to think of my uh, clients as gambling. Mm hmm. Even though that's like straight up what they are doing. But she's like, yes. I don't like to think of them doing that. Like, I don't I don't like to think of them as gambling, but they don't like to think of it as gambling either. And there's this like heartbreaking uh, other like call that uh, is described um, about a woman who uh, has lost a bunch of money and calls oh, in like the one that lost twenty eight thousand pounds. Yes. 
Yes, and she uh, calls in to try to do something, and like the 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 woman, uh, I don't know, like she's not a like they're not called luck ambassadors, right? But like whatever they are, um, is trying to say like there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do, and then her her quote, and this is page one if we do forty nine, is it was qu- it was a quite upsetting phone call actually because she had then uh because she was then getting really hysterical and really upset, and I think it started to dawn on her what she herself had done. When there's someone managing you, there's someone who is corporately there to manage you to make sure that you spend appropriately. Mm-hmm. Like, and appropriately meaning as much as possible. Oh, yeah, that's not the one who who lost 28,000 pounds. Sorry, I, I was oh. conflating you. The woman who lost 28,000 pounds is the one who says, uh, well, why would it be on the television yes. if it weren't safe? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, the UK, you have beefed it like mm-hmm. like like what is the word what does the word responsible mean when like that is the the level that you're operating on which is like yeah someone vetted this right so someone it must be me because someone is vetting this and keeping like satan itself from prodding me in the ass with this pitchfork nope <laughs> <laughs> not, not the case uh, the devil is free in the world unfortunately mm-hmm. um yeah good god um the uh yeah the, and the i guess the one last thing i have to say here too is that uh, again there's more of this these kind of interviews with the people who are making the thing right and mm-hmm. this person says um uh, uh frank account manager looks up from his book currency trading for dummies in order to disagree our problem <laughs> is that uh, quote our problem is that we have to be uh it's all about responsible gambling It's not, and I don't agree with it completely because I think people should be responsible for their own actions. The way it's written in the regulation says we have to make sure that people aren't doing their brains. I just think people are weak. If you get addicted, it's because you are weak and you have no willpower. Maybe I'm harsh. I see everything in black and white. I'm addicted to cars because I want to (laughs) be. And I wrote in my notes that, like, I can only imagine a small child with, like, the, the moral universe of a baby. Having mm-hmm. this opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were tweeting about the Shul episode, and I, I actually want to think, I, I, I imagine we have a lot of new listeners because a lot of people listen to that episode. And I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. If you did and you're a new listener, uh, welcome in. And I hope you did that. But, and we generally got, so we were tweeting about it. And because people were really engaging with it, you know, we probably tweeted about that episode more uh, than we normally would uh, for an episode release. And, uh, but somewhere in there, eventually I got a tweet from someone. I did not respond to it because it would, uh, cause my brain to disintegrate to have to engage with it. But, um, it was on the level, or not, not even the level. The person just said that it responded to the, you know, us talking about the shul book and like all of the ways that, uh, the gambling industry has, has weaponized literally all of society against gamblers, right? Like mm-hmm. it truly is a, a, a violent and extractive system that is beyond individual willpower, right? Like the individual human pales in comparison to the machine that is operating on them. And this person just said, a fool is easily parted from their money. And I just, I, if I, I was like, this is a baby's way of thinking the world. Mm-hmm. This you you are you are using like a two thousand year old idiom <laughs> to like look at an alien apparatus that has its like p- 
pause in your neurons. Right. A, a, <laughs> an industry specifically designed and engineered to extract value from people who have certain like uh, uh, personality foibles, right? Yeah. Like, like these things are co-evolved. <laughs> and even if you don't have like personality foibles, right? It will it will invent them in you. Yes, <laughs> it will give you them. Right? right? Yeah, it, it doesn't just like lock into them. It cultivates them. Yes, right. Exactly. It wants them to grow. It gives them ground. <laughs> And, and that's what I think so great about this Cassidy book is that, I, and Scholl did this too, this is not discounting Scholl, but Scholl was, you know, really focused in on the individual and the kind of dyad they have with the machine, right? Like, how does the machine do the thing? But what's so good, I think, about this Cassidy book is it's like, okay, that is absolutely happening. And also, uh, the, the gambling industry has cultivated the space you do that in, which Scholl also did. But also the gambling industry has cultivated the deals that happen behind the scenes to make that space possible. And also the gambling industry has cultivated the social political system in your local region that allows that to happen. And also they have cultivated the app store that it happens within. And also they have cultivated, and maybe we can go into chapter eight from here, but they have cultivated the EU's response to gambling in mm -hmm. order to set the 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 like goalposts for play in order to make this possible for it to happen, right? It's like you are at the fine, the, the littlest, teensiest sliver of a funnel end of a huge, like, gun <laughs> that mm -hmm. is aimed at you to make you want to gamble and be engaged in these systems. And ultimately, right, like, I think the gambling people are right in that gambling is fun. So it often doesn't require that much additional kind of like focus to do it. But good, you know, with the deck stacked against you so heavily, it's impossible to imagine that the word responsibility comes into play at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's so laughable to me. I, I and I just think, oh, look, little, little, are you kidding me? <laughs> Well, right and this, this this does get us into chapter eight which is about sort of regulation and how that yeah. works uh because the gambling industry very much wants to present itself as saying like as you say right game like clearly people who gamble are not just like miserable from start to finish right uh even before like you get into a bad situation clearly people are getting something out of this uh and so the gambling industry steps in and says you know what let people enjoy things Right, that <laughs> they really do. Right, that is their official policy. Let people enjoy things. Right, uh, and and like one of the things that I wish everybody on the internet could like sit with for a moment, uh, aside from the meme of let people enjoy things, is that whenever there is a group or a body or like anyone saying let people enjoy things, there is some subset of people who are really saying let me make money off of people enjoying things. And that's what the yeah. gambling industry is doing, really. That's what they're really saying while they're saying, just let people enjoy things. <laughs> yeah, let people enjoy things because it's a billion dollar industry or multiple billion, <laughs> hundreds of billions of dollar industry, I guess, worldwide. Mm -hmm. But yeah, absolutely. Right. It's just like, yeah, yes, of course. Let people enjoy things, which is why uh, Netflix is creating its own fandom content, <laughs> you know, website. Mm -hmm. hmm, interesting. <laughs> Yep. Who and, and but right, I, you know, we're, and we're we're being a little jokey, but also a little bit serious. But like the the uh, enjoyment is easily politicized, and it's easily profited from 
in a general sense, no matter what that enjoyment is and what it is of. And in uh, let people enjoy things from a corporate perspective is exactly as you're saying, let me extract from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me make sure that no one is there to tell you that you can be extracted from very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I really like this, this chapter. I don't know how much we have to say about it, really, because it really gets into specific minutia of EU and then EC, the European Commission regulations. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that really matters here is that Cassidy says, and all the gambling industry people love this, that the EC, uh, the Gambling Commission, failed at the first hurdle or fell at the first hurdle mm-hmm. because they could never define what online gambling was. Yep. And because they couldn't do that, they basically created a um, every country gets to create its own code as long as it hits these very basic rules. Mm-hmm. And And so this is kind of a chapter of like, how has gambling landed um, in online gambling in particular, but also in-person gambling? How has it landed in each country in the EU, and how does the UK kind of ping off of that or distinguish itself from that? Mm-hmm. This is also where we get the the stated claim that once a state is receiving money from gambling, it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to kind of disrupt that relationship, right? Like yeah. once the once the government or an administration is dependent on gambling for income in some way, uh, good luck getting gambling to like go away. Uh, another fascinating detail that comes out here, uh, this is on page 165, gambling regulation propositions, which are often written by people in the industry and then presented to like government bodies who then basically, you know, vote on them. These are often just like copied and pasted from each other. Like people who are writing these things are just like looking up Nevada's gambling laws and copying and pasting things. Yeah. Yeah, because and and it's because of the professional class too. I really like that part of this chapter. Is that uh, she's pointing out that uh, in the regulation industry, it's all of these like former police, former military, like mm-hmm. middle manager people, oh, and they yeah. all have this like like uh you know real politic thing going on, right? Where it's like the world in front of us is the world in front of us, and we got no nonsense, and we're gonna treat this like you know any other industry. Mm-hmm. And and so they they don't have any interest in thinking about how gambling um, and the gambling industry might be a little bit different from like trading oil shares or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. The kind of even the perspective that they take is one of like bureaucracy and administration and like making sure all the right uh, hands get shaked, as opposed mm-hmm. to like you know, is this good for people or not? That that never seems to enter into the, the equation for them. Well, and they also get these benefits. I think this is the chapter, you mentioned this before, uh, about the hot tub. She quotes a, mm-hmm. uh, it says like, um, you know, I don't, I think, I'm thinking I'm not supposed to be here. You know, that's the quote. And then like the person it comes from is a regulator who is sitting in a hot tub with like two bikini clad women who are there at the behest of the gambling like company or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and this uh, is another interesting thing that showed up here speaking to like the gender issue and the misogyny and sexism uh, that mm-hmm. that uh, Cassidy is hitting. Uh, this was in, in the first chapter, maybe, or maybe it was in the introduction. Um, I wanted to point it out. Uh, the industry events she mentions, she she suggests that they often have like uh, uh, women dancers there, like scantily mm-hmm. clad women dancers. Which is one reminds me of kind of like what uh, E3 used to look like with the booth babes. Mm-hmm. Um, but then two is another really interesting contrast to the industry events that Shul is describing where it doesn't seem like any of that stuff is happening. Or if it is, it's not something that is remarked upon. Yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't get a lot of reports of it, right? It, it's uh, 
the all of these like EU meetings or or the events she's talking about all sound like boat shows to me. Yes. <laughs> right? Like like a, it's a little weird, a little seedy feeling, I guess, but like all in good fun cuz we're the gambling industry and we're cool. Whereas yeah, it does feel like uh the US is like shark skin suits and uh you know slick back hair like professionals Mm -hmm. capital p professionals yes we're all Uh, professionals here we're a good rational industry we've got a protestant work ethic yeah it, it does have that kind of vibe to it uh let me read the actual quote this is on 159 i have a feeling i shouldn't be here and and uh, quotation and then from regulator wearing a shiny red sequined hat and holding a large cocktail sitting in a hot tub accompanied by young women employed by a gambling company yep <laughs> uh oh and th- this is the second quote she she has so many great just like and this is the humor i was talking about too right like that is so flatly funny mm-hmm. and ridiculous it's, it's the wonderful british talent for understatement <laughs> <laughs> yes uh this is the other one. This is very tastefully done, isn't it? I should think it's quite interesting to you from a professional perspective, as an anthropologist, that is. And that quotation is from regulator wearing a burlesque strip, or no, sorry, regulator watching a burlesque strip tease in a bar in a European capital city during a conference. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't this be interesting to you? But, yes. Uh... uh she also tells us the thing about being in Greece uh, with the guy who's t- talking to her and smashing plates in between, telling her about French gambling laws or whatever. Yes. There's some the, look. I this book is a pretty quick read and a pretty uh, breezy read. I mean, it's got a lot of detail in it, but I, you know, much like the Shul book, it is very. Um, it, it is about getting you to think about this issue and hopefully changing some minds about it. It, it feels like a book that's rhetorically positioned. And uh, if any of this has sounded interesting to you, just read the book. It's mm-hmm. it's very affordable and uh, very entertaining. I had a good time reading it. Um, but uh, unless you got anything else to say about regulation, um, we can talk about the conclusion, which we've already talked about a bit. Yeah, the conclusion, um, I mean, provides, as you've already said, provides kind of a couple of good thesis statements for everything going on in this book. I'll just read one here from uh, page 175. Um, An expanding gambling industry does not require extreme views in order to prosper. It thrives on low-level libertarianism and, particularly, an irresistible idea that is virtually unopposable, that people should be free to behave as they please. Yep. Right. The neoliberal outlook. Everyone's a rational actor. Let people mm-hmm. let people do what they want. As long as it's not hurting other people, let them enjoy things. If this is freedom, then what is unfreedom? Like the, the freedom to be uh, picked apart by vultures on the rock every evening. Right. Like, mm-hmm. woof. Um, the uh, yeah, the one thing I thought was interesting here too, the kind of like little stinger that's in the conclusion is she's talking about the guy um, who had the company. Uh, in Gibraltar, who was like new to the industry and was going to oh, a responsible yeah. gambling event, and he was like, "Cool, I'm going to like try to figure out some ways the, to make gambling more responsible." Like, this or you know, poor a, a, son a, of a <laughs> yes, this poor poor guy who didn't, but like <laughs> he thought that meant for us to be more responsible as designers of these experiences. Yeah, and so he showed up and he was like, "Hey, here's all these like uh, I've thought about. I've looked at the data, and here's a few different ways where we could like help people." Uh, you know, break with problem gambling. And everyone treated him like the world's biggest asshole, apparently. Mm-hmm. And this is an actual quote, quote, why the fuck would we share our best customers with you? And that was after he asked for like data on their problem gamblers too. Right. He was like, maybe we can like collaborate, like have the data from our problem gamblers and we can use that to like address their problems. And they're like, what? No. 
Yeah, they are so much, it seems like, and, and maybe this is just, you know, a, a difference in style or whatever, but a big difference that seems like between what Shul says about the American industry and what Cassidy says about the UK industry and its kind of tendrils in Gibraltar and elsewhere is that the UK industry is so, is fully masked off about the way that they think about problem gamblers, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, we, we have problem gamblers and they're awesome. They're our best customers. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is not an issue. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, kind of what's going on here. Uh, the the ending uh, suggests that because gambling and sort of its spread uh, is something, it's not like a natural fact, right? It's not mm-hmm. uh, just happening because it's meant to happen. It's happening because there are specific like regulations being passed and then reactions to those regulations and ways of interfacing with them and like various incentives. Uh because of that, uh, gambling can also be uh, pushed back against, right? Like things can change. And she mentions that like uh, apparently in the UK, um, there has been a big turn against like football betting among fans because the ads uh, urging you to bet during football games are so frequent that they have become annoying. <laughs> Like it, it's like such a, a a huge thing now that people are actually being like, well, I think this actually diminishes the game uh, in some ways. Right. And this comes after yeah. some some really sad stories that she has of uh, people who've like worked themselves into debt and some of whom who've like completed suicide because there was mm-hmm. just no way out. And apparently uh, there was some regulation passed fairly recently in the UK that took down uh, the maximum bet on the FOBTs from 100 pounds to two pounds. Yeah, it seems like that has been one of the like, uh, because it's good for everybody, Mm -hmm. um, that decreasing bet amounts seems to be like a big actual thing that people are willing to do. Uh, Because there's another place where she talks about how that actually decreased violence against the machines. Mm-hmm. was taking maximum bets down from 500 pounds, which seems wa- just absolutely bewildering to me that you could sit down in a machine and w- with no vetting, put in your card and just like bet 500 pounds. Mm-hmm. It's like 700 bucks mm-hmm. on something. But also, uh, people are free to be free. Do whatever you want. Right. Uh, <laughs> You're a uh, rational but, actor. Good luck. Yeah. But, so, but that seems to be a thing that they're willing to do uh, to decrease the bet size because it decreases aggression. Uh, against their machines, which secures their investment in that machine. Um, but also the bet frequency is so high as who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that's how machine gambling works, right? Like you can max it out at one one pound and it wouldn't matter because the the, uh, the gambling frequency possibility is so high that people can still spend a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's maybe they're, they're learning that from the U.S. Uh, side. Anyway, I enjoyed this book. That was good. Yeah, no, it's good. And it's a, a re- it's really good to have read it like in conversation with Shul because it does give you uh, such clear senses of like where these things overlap. And also, as I said at the beginning, like how culturally distinct uh, gambling can be in sort of like the, the sort of like way that it uh, exists in your day to day life. All right, so uh, next month we're going to be back with uh, a little bit of a swerve, a little bit of a mutation. Ooh. Uh, we're going to be reading uh, a book called The Player's Power to Change the Game, Ludic Mutation, um, which is by Anne-Marie Schleiner, I think is how you say it. Mm-hmm. It's from Amsterdam University Press from uh, fairly recently. It's a, it's a pretty new book. Yeah, 2017. Um, 
2017. And I'm just going to be honest, I'm uh, just very selfishly, I just want to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we're going to be digging into some uh, big capital T theory ideas behind games, some kind of philosophy of game stuff going on in here. And, um, you know, thinking about big questions about kind of um, the way that games make arguments and how they work and, and what is the intervention that a player makes into the space of a game. So if, if you like those kinds of big conversations that we have on the show occasionally, I think it's going to be a good platform for those to happen. Um, I think that is it, unless you've got anything you want to say or plug, Michael? No. I think I just want to tell everyone, remind you, that the social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>